is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything. It's Monday night on KOPN, and this is Mike Hagen. I'll be back with you in just a few minutes. Mike and it's Radio Orbit. Monday night, just a few minutes after 11 o'clock. And uh, a new theme song sort of turned a new leaf last week on the 3rd of April. A wonderful program. And a big thank you right off the bat to Dr. Dennis. And uh, thanks so much for sharing with us. Your intelligence, amazing. Uh, what an articulate, brilliant man. And, of course, Stephen Buhner, 
another amazing man, and uh, just a wonderful gentleness, too, you know, that Stephen has about himself, as well as his brilliance, you know. So, anyway, thanks to both Stephen Herod Buner, Dr. Dennis McKenna, a wonderful program last week, and uh, lots of real nice uh, letters of appreciation from listeners. And to those of you who wrote, uh, thanks, I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, uh, there's no, uh, no reason also to uh, not mention that, you know, the guests that are on this program are much more approachable than you might, uh, than you might think. And so, uh, you know, if you're uh, in the midst of sending an email to me or whatever, <clears throat> copy, uh, copy them on it, you know. Send a note to Dennis. Send a note to Stephen. Those guys would love to hear from you. They'd love to know that they're having an impact and people are interested in what they're saying. And it makes a, a great uh, impact, believe it or not. One email with encouragement and uh, gratitude, that sort of thing, makes all the difference. I mean... Every time I get an email from you guys, from from my listeners, uh, you know, and, and it doesn't always have to be, you know, congratulatory, you know, but just responses to know that people are out there listening and interested and curious, and maybe they don't agree with everything, but they're interested in, uh, you know, dialogue and discussion and debate and learning and this sort of thing, and that's what it's all about. So, anyway... Uh, feel free to do that. All of the guests on the program, obviously, uh, you know, I was able to uh, to contact them, so that means they're they're approachable enough uh, where I could get to them, and I'm nothing special. So, uh, you know, feel free. Send an email to these guys and girls who are uh, striking you because it'll mean a lot to them, okay? Okay, so uh, once again, thanks, Dennis, Stephen. You guys are great. All right, so what else? Tonight uh, we have Dr. Michael Heisen my friend and a wonderful dolphin and whale researcher, a Ph.D. neurobiologist and marine biologist from the Sirius Institute in Puna, Hawaii. Uh, Michael is an amazing man. He's been on the program a couple of times before. Uh, his partner in uh, crime, so to speak, uh, is Star Newland and uh, the former Paradise Newland. Of course, Star has been on the program a couple of times as well, uh, sometimes with Michael, sometimes without. Uh, at any rate, those two are doing great work together, and we're going to catch up uh, with Michael tonight and find out what's going on in the dolphin world and uh, what's up with, with Dr. Heisen. Okay, so that's coming up tonight. We'll have music tonight from a wonderful young woman named Lisa Walker, and we'll be featuring songs all night from her album, Grooved Whale. And I've played a couple of cuts from it in the past once or twice, but uh, wait till you hear it. Really cool stuff, all right? All right, thanks for the wonderful emails. Hello to everybody else listening over on the web. And as always, thanks to Larry, the web wizard. Changes with the website are pretty much complete. You know, they will always be sort of ongoing and trying to add more and stuff uh, and, and more to come. But uh, now we're sort of troubleshooting and tweaking and trying to get things working <clears throat> correctly. So... Uh, as always, we need your help. We need your feedback. Let us know what you think. There's lots of great new uh, interactive components on the web. This live chat thing that's right on the front page, actually on every page, is really cool. The forum is something that I have great expectation for. And, uh, of course, the music archives, all this stuff is uh, either with us or just around the corner. And we've got the, uh, the potential to bring much more a much more multimedia experience into the website. We're starting to do a whole lot more with visual art, and Larry, of course, will start to bring in 
uh, audio and motion to all of this stuff as well, okay? Uh, one of the things that I'd like to do in order to get uh, opinions and advice and uh, concerns, comments, questions, or whatever from you guys, the listeners, is I'm trying to develop a mailing list. And so if you are interested, just go on the web and go over to MikeHagan.com and click on the tab that says register or the link that says register and it's real simple just put in your name and uh, pick a uh, sort of a, a username for the site and there's no particular you know personal information other than just your name and you could lie about that if you really wanted to I don't care I just want to you know an email address primarily for uh, people who are listening to the show so we can uh, keep them up to speed on things that are coming in the future and and also have a way to communicate uh, back and forth with them. So if you're interested, just go to the site and register. And um, a couple of things, if you do that, you can get a free copy of my friends Yachai, uh, their wonderful CD, Sweet Mother Mercy, that's uh, available on the web as a free download if you register over at the website. And also Larry's got a pretty cool little screensaver that he put together uh, that you can get if you register as well. So. Uh, go over to the website at MikeHagan.com and uh, pick a name and sign up, and you can grab a couple of freebies and also give me uh, a chance to um, uh, to network with you and uh, to begin corresponding and communicating with you, okay? All right, the email address, as always, is OrbitRadio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, OrbitRadio at AOL.com. And the website I just mentioned, MikeHagan.com. The phone number here in the studio Eight seven four five six seven six one eight hundred eight nine five five six seven six. If you're outside of the five seven three area code, and I have a personal message for Mandy. Uh, if you're listening, give me a call at five seven three eight seven four five six seven six. When I take a break here in a few minutes, okay? Uh, I have something for you. All right. Uh, as I said tonight, Dr. Michael Heisen. Next week, James Kent the author of Psychedelic Information Theory. He'll be on the program for the entirety of the program next week on April the 17th. The 24th is uh, an open date. I think we'll probably just take that date and do a show on our own and maybe take some phone calls and I'll catch up on some news that I haven't been able to talk about and we'll just sort of wing it for a week <clears throat> on the 24th, okay? The following week on the 5th, uh, I take that back on the 1st of May, Richard Glenn Bohr, uh, again with Dennis McKenna. Uh, Dr. Dennis should be back with us on May 1st with Richard Glenn Bohr. Richard Glenn Bohr, of course, is the director of the Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics. And it would be uh, a great benefit to you to go over and check out Richard's work at cognitiveliberty.org. Very important stuff that uh, that Richard is working on and recognized, of course, by Dennis and vice versa. So those guys are going to get together, and we'll do a little three-way conversation like we did with Stephen last week. This show um, <clears throat> coming up, however, on the 1st of May will be a live program uh, with Dennis McKenna and Richard Glenn Bohr, okay? All right, on the 8th of May, not sure, on the 15th of May, Dr. Alan Goldstein, the uh, chair of Molecular Cell Biology and Biomedical Materials uh, Engineering and Science Program, at uh, Alfred University, one of the leading, leading authorities on nanobiotechnology. He'll be on the program on the 15th of May. The 22nd of, uh, of May, Rian Eisler, the wonderful Rian Eisler, uh, the remarkable author of The Chalice 
and the blade. And um, as a matter of fact, Rian has an event that's coming up too that I want to mention to you guys. And I think that I've got it marked here on the on, on the uh, posted on the website here. And it is actually from the 27th and from the 27th through the 30th of April. And it is uh, at the second annual West Coast Conference on Montessori Education and the Partnership Way. This is what the conference is titled. And I'll read just a blurb of it here to you. And this is a message that came from Rianne Eisler herself. I am particularly excited about this year's theme on the role of education in fostering partnership and peace, which is so timely and important. The conference will be held on the Monterey Peninsula near my home, uh, this time at the just-renovated Hilton Garden Inn. I will serve as both keynote speaker and as a contributing panelist, along with many other educational leaders from the Montessori school community and those who are developing schools along partnership lines around the world, as well as innovative thinkers from outside education who can inspire and enlighten us with knowledge and experience. So if you're interested in the work that Rian Eisler is doing, and it's remarkable and important, uh, you can go on the web and check that out at partnershipway.org. That's partnershipway.org. And Rian will be on the program on the 22nd of May. And she's a wonderful woman and has written some amazing books in her career. And personally, I think that she should have made much more of a splash in sort of the feminist movement than she really did. But I think that the reason that she didn't was because there was and still is a pretty hardcore percentage of the feminist movement that has their eye on the prize of a full-on matriarchy. They want to see men completely pr pretty much done away with and, and out of the picture. Uh, Rian's approach has been, well, it's in the, directly shown in the, the name of her website, partnershipway.org. Rian's work, research, and uh, writing is about male and female partnerships and the feminine and the, and the masculine in a, uh, an equal partnership arrangement, something that actually has historical precedent that we'll talk about with Rian when she's on the program. So anyway, that's coming up on May 22nd, okay? All right, uh, lots of other things coming up. We'll do space weather in uh, just a few minutes. And until then, let's play a little bit of music here from my friend Lisa Walker. This is from her CD, as I said, Grooved Whale. And it's the first track on that CD. So this is Mike, you listen to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
All right. Wonderful stuff. That's Lisa Walker from her release, her debut release, as a matter of fact, called Grooved Whale. And Lisa is a really interesting recording artist. She's a violinist <clears throat> by training. But uh, she had this interesting idea that she would take an electric violin and play it through a hydrophone out in the middle of the ocean. And she would uh, play her songs for whales or any other critters that happened to be listening down there beneath the surface. And interestingly enough, the whales responded. And Lisa was able to set up a contraption where she could record the responses uh, of the whales to her playing and vice versa. And it became a interspecies communication of sorts. And... Uh, and then she mixed it all together to make this amazing CD called Grooved Whale. And Grooved Whale is a sort of colloquial term for the humpback. This is another, uh, another name for the humpback whale. So anyway, Lisa Walker, wonderful stuff. And you can check her out on the web at GroovedWhale.com. And we'll have more from Lisa as we go on into the program tonight, okay? Okay, it's Mike and it's Radio Orbit. It's just about 30 minutes past uh, 11 o'clock on Monday morning, and it's the 10th of April, 2006. All right, let's do space weather quickly here. Uh, we have a little bit of an aurora watch in effect. There was a, a short but pretty powerful geomagnetic storm back on the 9th of April, just uh, uh, early in the morning yesterday. And it sparked aurora borealis as far south as Colorado, actually, uh, over the last two nights. And some interesting photographs of that on the web. If you're interested in it, you can go uh, over to spaceweather.com. They always have an interesting collection of images in their, uh, in their gallery there. So uh, same thing tonight, possibly more aurora borealis and, uh, uh, or more typical tonight over the northern hemisphere, or the, the uh, northern latitudes, Alaska, Canada, Scandinavia. And, um, of course, it's due to the ongoing effects of this solar wind that was uh, kicked up a notch from the storm that happened a couple of days ago. <clears throat> uh, there's also some amazing prominences on the sun right now. If you look through uh, certain filters on the Soho camera that uh, Kent Stedman and I were talking about last week and that we talk about all the time, you can see some of this enormous uh, prominences that are blasting off the surface of the sun right now. And again, some really interesting imagery of that sort of stuff over at spaceweather.com as well. Okay? All right, the moon, <clears throat> if you haven't noticed, it's uh, approaching full. It'll actually be a full moon on the 13th of April, which is Thursday. And uh, then it'll begin to wane off and uh, be new again on April the 27th. Uh, the moon actually will appear next to or very close to uh, to Jupiter tomorrow well actually I guess it won't be tomorrow it'll be around Friday and Saturday of this week uh, the 14th and 15th um, when the moon is waning in the late evening and until uh, early dawn hours the moon will be very close to Jupiter and later in the month around the 24th or so uh, around dawn the moon will be uh, able to be seen as a crescent and very near the planet Venus. So a couple things to look for over the next couple weeks. Tonight, 
the moon in the southeast uh, as night was falling and will be uh, pretty much halfway overhead, probably is right now. And if you notice up to the moon, uh, take a look at the moon, then look to the upper right, and about 20 degrees, maybe a little bit more than that, you'll see the star Regulus. And if you look uh, to the lower left, you'll see another bright star that's called Spica, and that's about 30 degrees down to the lower left of the moon, okay? All right, I have one more thing I wanted to talk about with regard to space weather, a, uh, a story here that has to do with uh, one of the rings of the planet Uranus. And uh, it basically says here, the outermost ring of Uranus discovered just last year is bright blue, making it only the second known blue ring in the solar system, according to a report this week in the journal Science. Perhaps not coincidentally, both blue rings are associated with small moons. The outer ring of Saturn is blue and has Enceladus right smack at its brightest spot. And Uranus is strikingly similar with its blue ring right on top of Mob's orbit. That's M-A-B. That's, not, that's the name of one of the moons of, of Uranus, M-A-B. Said Imkid Potter, a professor of astronomy at the University of California, Berkeley, the blue color says that this ring is predominantly sub-micron sized material, much smaller than the material in most other rings which appear red. Uh, and the only reason I thought that was of note was because water was discovered on Enceladus recently. And so I thought that uh, maybe this was of note as well, this moon Mab, or Mob, that's in one of the outer orbits of the planet Uranus, uh, also is associated with this blue ring. Blue, of course, also is the color that we associate with water. So I don't know, something to make note of for future reference, okay? What else is happening here? About a year ago, actually, a year ago yesterday, there was a probe from the European Space Agency that was launched. It was called the Venus Express, and uh, it took off from the deserts of Kazakhstan, and it was launched aboard a uh, Soyuz rocket, a Soviet rocket, and after traveling some 400 million kilometers in, oh, I don't know, five months or so, I guess it is, the spacecraft is now just about ready to reach Venus, and the rendezvous is due to take place tomorrow. So if you're interested in that, get on the web uh, and go to esa.int, and you can find out uh, live information and coverage of the ongoing mission for the uh, Venus Express. All right, what else do we have here? Uh, Yuri's Night. I found an interesting website that's, uh, that, that's uh, dedicated to Yuri, uh, Yuri Gagarin, who was uh, the first human being to ever go into space. And that happened uh, 45 years ago on Wednesday. It will be on April 12th, but on April 12th, 45 years ago, uh, Yuri Gagarin became the first human being to go into space. And on that same day, 25 years ago, uh, John Young and Robert Crippen flew the first space shuttle uh, flight into orbit. So anyway, if you go to the web again and go to Yuri, uh, yurisnight.net, Y-U-R-I-S-N-I-G-H-T.net, yurisnight.net, you can celebrate in this party uh, of space travel and uh, just fun stuff in general. All right, one other thing here, April 15th, Comet Russell 1 will reach its closest approach to Earth. Okay? All right, so that's space weather. Go outside, take a look around, lift your gaze to the heavens, and uh, appreciate the beautiful sights. You know, this time of the year in Missouri, we get some great stargazing. I've been out a lot lately and had some wonderful opportunity to see the stars and the moon. And when it's clear, 
here in Missouri. There's some uh, some really good sky watching. So take advantage of it, okay? Turn the TV off. Turn the radio off. Turn me off. And uh, go outside. Take a deep breath and stare at the stars, okay? All right, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. And uh, we will continue with some more music from Lisa Walker from her CD, Grooved Whale. Back in just a few minutes.
More great stuff from Lisa Walker. Music from her CD, Grooved Whale. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And it is uh, just about 20 minutes until the top of the hour. Midnight coming up, and it will be the 11th of April, 2006. All right, let's read a few stories uh, out of the news here. Check this out. Study in a first explains evolution's molecular advance. This is from uh, the New York Times. By reconstructing ancient genes from long-extinct animals, scientists have for the first time demonstrated the step-by-step progression of how evolution created a new piece of molecular machinery by reusing and modifying existing parts. The researchers say the findings published today in the journal Science offer a counter-argument to doubters of evolution who question how a progression of small changes could produce the intricate mechanisms found in living cells. The evolution of complexity is a long-standing issue in evolutionary biology, said Joseph Thornton, professor of biology at University of Oregon and the lead author of the paper. We wanted to understand how the system evolved at the molecular level. There's no scientific controversy over whether the system evolved. The question for scientists is how it evolved, and that's what our study showed. Charles Darwin wrote in The Origin of the Species, if it would be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Discoveries like that announced this week of a fish with limb-like fins have filled in the transitions between species. New molecular biology techniques let scientists begin to reconstruct how the processes inside a cell evolved over millions of years. And a much more thorough and uh, detailed article available on the web on the New York Times. You can link to that uh, from my website. Uh, just go to MikeHagan.com and click on the News tab. All right? Okay, here's another interesting story. This one is from ah, Washington University in St. Louis. Chaos equals order. Physicists make baffling discovery. According to a computational study conducted by a group of physicists at Washington University in St. Louis, one may create order by introducing disorder. While working on their model, a network of interconnected pendulums or oscillators, the researchers noticed that when driven by ordered forces, the various pendulums behaved chaotically and swung out of sync like a group of intoxicated synchronized swimmers. This was unexpected. Shouldn't synchronized forces yield synchronized pendulums? But then came the real surprise. When they introduced disorder, forces were applied at random to each oscillator, the system became ordered and synchronized. The thing that is counterintuitive is that when you introduce disorder into the system, when the forces on the pendulums act at random, the chaos that was present before disappears, and there is order, said Sebastian F. Brandt, Washington University physics graduate, student in arts and sciences, and the lead author of the study, which appeared in the January 2006 edition of Physical Review Letters. Order from chaos. Yeah. <laughs> Watch what happens. All right. What else do we have here? And uh, for those really interested in that, uh, just go check out the work of Ralph, uh, Ralph Abraham. He's been uh, the leading edge of this sort of stuff for a long, long time. Documentary showing on mysterious stone ruins. This is something that uh, comes out of uh, Boston or thereabouts, Sharon, Massachusetts, as a matter of fact. On Saturday, April 22nd, the Sharon Historical Society from Sharon, Massachusetts, along with a number of other organizations, invite all to attend 
a screening of Hidden Landscapes, a video documentary by Theodore Timrek. Shrouded in myth and controversy for decades, the mysterious stone ruins found in eastern North America have now become the focus of a new research initiative that is quite different from the efforts of the past. New working collaborations between professional scientists, native historians, and amateur antiquarian pioneers of stone monument research have brought their perspectives together. Working in partnership, ah, what a concept, uh, they have begun to show that many regions and communities in the Northeast may contain an important archaeological legacy of monumental landscape architecture with deep roots in the American past. All right, rewind to last Monday's show and uh, recall what Kent Stedman was talking about when he and I were uh, discussing ancient monuments and mound building. And Kent made a point of what an astonishing situation we have in the, in the uh, Atlantic uh, northeastern coast of the United States. In fact, all the way down the eastern seaboard. Thousands and thousands of earthworks and mounds and cairns, many of which are laid out uh, according to recognizable star charts and, and astronomical patterns and constellations. And so, yeah, amazing stuff that needs to be looked into. And I'm really pleased to see that there are some people that are uh, starting to work together uh, from different uh, from different angles to try to figure out what some of these things mean because certainly there are answers there for us guaranteed okay let's see I got a couple stories about whales um, uh, that I'll talk about in just a minute but we'll do that once Michael gets on the phone here I'll call him in just a minute here's a couple more though listen to this this one's sort of funny I'll read the whole thing battling ignorance with science Bill Nye the harmless children's edutainer known as the science guy managed to offend a select group of idiot adults in Waco when he suggested that the moon does not emit light. As even most elementary school graduates know, the moon reflects the light of the sun, but produces no light of its own. But don't tell that to the good old people of Waco, who were visibly angered by what some perceived as irreverence, according to the Waco Tribune. Bill Nye was in town to participate in McLennan Community College's Distinguished Lecture Series. He gave two lectures on such unfunny and adult topics as global warming, Mars exploration, and energy consumption. But nothing got people as riled as when he brought up Genesis 1.16, which reads, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. The lesser light, Nye pointed out, is not a light at all, but only a reflector. At this point, several people in the audience stormed out in a fury. One woman yelled, we believe in God, and left with three children, thus assuring that people across America would read about the incident and conclude that Waco is as nutty as they'd always suspected. Wow. All right. Stranger and stranger. All right, I'll tell you what we're going to do here. I think I'm going to put on another piece of music, and I'll get Michael on the phone, because I want to read these two stories that have to do with whales and language and... Uh, some other things, and I'd like him to hear those. So I'll get him on the phone here, and then we'll come back. I'll read a couple more stories, and we'll have Dr. Michael Heisen right at the top of the hour, okay? All right, it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. And again, Lisa Walker from Grooved Whale.
Okay. Once again, Lisa Walker from Grooved Whale. And uh, more information about Lisa and her work in wonderful art and music can be found at GroovedWhale.com. And we'll have more from uh, we'll have more from Lisa throughout the program tonight. Okay. Okay. This is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. It's close enough to the top of the hour to make it so. Just a couple minutes before midnight, and I've got a couple stories here I'll read to you before we get to our guest, Dr. Michael Heisen, of course, coming to us in just a few minutes from his home in Hawaii. All right. Check this out. A wonderful story, and uh, it's from. It's a little bit dated, but I had to pull it out because I thought it was sort of fun and happy. Uh, it's a story from December of uh, 2005 from San Francisco, okay? A humpback whale freed by divers from a tangle of crab trap lines near the Farallon Islands nudged its rescuers and flapped around in what marine experts said was a rare and remarkable encounter. That's not necessarily true. I was the first diver in the water, and my heart sank when I saw all the lines wrapped around it, said Mosquito, a 40-year-old Pleasanton resident, uh, resident who works with uh, Great White Adventures, a cage-diving outfit that contracts with another man named Mengios. I really didn't think we were going to be able to save the whale, Mosquito said. About 20 crab pot ropes, which are 240 feet long with weights every 60 feet, were wrapped around the animal. Rope was wrapped at least four times around the tail, the back and the left front flipper, and there was a line in the whale's mouth. The crab pot lines were cinched so tight, Mosquito said, that the rope was digging into the animal's blubber and leaving visible cuts. At least 12 crab traps weighing 90 pounds each hung off the whale, the diver said. The combined weight was pulling the whale downward, forcing it to struggle to keep its blowhole out of the water. Mosquito and three other divers spent about an hour cutting the ropes with a special curved knife. The whale tried to float passively in the water the whole time, he said, giving off a strange sort of vibration. When I was cutting the line going through the mouth, its eye was there winking at me, watching me, Mosquito said. It was an epic moment in my life. When the whale realized it was free, it began swimming around in circles, according to the rescuers. Mosquito said it swam to each diver, nuzzled him, and then swam to the next one. It seemed kind of affectionate, like a dog that's happy to see you, Mosquito said. I've never felt th I never felt threatened. It was an amazing, unbelievable experience. Whale experts say it's nice to think that the whale was thanking its rescuers, but nobody really knows what was on its mind. You hate to anthropomorphize too much, but the whale was doing little dives and the guys were rubbing shoulders with it, Mengio said. I don't know for sure what it was thinking, but it's something that I will always remember. It was just too cool. <clears throat> awesome story. And I will add about this whole idea of anthropomorphization, you know, think about what Stephen Buner said last week. I love his word, you know, mechanomorphize. You know, we have, a lot we have a lot more in common with a whale than we do with an automobile. So why do we say we're more like a car, you know? So there's nothing wrong with thinking that the whale was showing affection and appreciation. It's obviously what was, what was happening there, I think. All right, uh, one more thing here. Whale song reveals sophisticated language skills. This is more recent. This comes from uh, uh, newscientist.com from <clears throat> just a couple weeks ago at the end of March. Uh, humpback whales use their own syntax or grammar in the complex songs they sing, say researchers who have developed a mathematical technique to probe the mysteries of whale song. The team adds that whales are the only other animals besides humans to use hierarchical structure and language in which phrases are embedded in larger recurring themes. This concept echoes scientific suggestions from the 70s 
but uh, the new computer analysis claims to confirm this and provides an objective measure of the song's structure and complexity. Male humpback whales produce songs that last anywhere from 6 to 30 minutes. These vocalizations vary greatly across seasons and during breeding periods. They are thought to help attract fem uh, female partners. Their eerie sound and patterns have captured the attention of marine biologists for decades. Researcher Ryuji Suzuki stresses whale songs are still a far cry from our own means of expression. He says that the use of terms referring to distinct and sometimes abstract objects appears unique to human language. We don't have any evidence of such things in whale songs. We're still very, very far from knowing the meaning of whale songs, he admits. Well, that's the answer, the last sentence of the article there. And there's much more to this article and to all of these, as I, as I always say. Get on the web and go to MikeHagan.com, click on the news page, and then you can go to the source articles for all these things that I'm reading. And, and what I'm reading now are just little snippets of the articles. I'm not reading the whole, uh, the whole piece. Anyway, it's more hubris from this researcher, this Suzuki fellow. Uh, you know, I love this. He says... Whale songs are still a far cry from our own means of expression. And then right after that he says, we're still very far from knowing the meaning of whale songs. Bottom line is he has no idea. And we'll talk with Michael about that in a, in a, in a few minutes, but the language skills of, uh, of dolphins and whales are quite possibly uh, much further advanced than humans as opposed to the opposite, which is implied with, with most of these articles. We still have this, uh, uh, this human god image at the top of the pyramid sort of. Uh, mythology that that, that uh, is still perpetuated. So, anyway, all right. Well, we'll be back, uh, we will be back in just uh, a moment with Michael Heisen, Dr. Michael Heisen, from the Sirius Institute in Puna, Hawaii, and we'll talk about whales and dolphins and space travel and language and intelligence and communication and who knows what else. We haven't talked to the good doctor for a while, so we'll be back in just a minute with him. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Just a minute. Dr. Michael Heisen. And if you want to get a leg up, uh, hop on the web and go over to Planet Puna, P-L-A-N-E-T-P-U-N-A dot -E com, and you can see for yourself uh, what Michael and his uh, team uh, are doing over there. You're listening to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan. On KOPN 89.5 FM. He comes to us live from his home in Hawaii. He is a brilliant Ph.D. neurobiologist and marine biologist. He's been on the program before, and we're not going to go into too much detail about his past. But if you're interested, get on the web and go to planetpuna.com and go look at Dr. Michael Heisen's resume and curriculum vitae. And you will be thoroughly impressed, I'm sure. But we don't have time for that tonight. 
we are going to get right to him and uh, say hello. Michael, how are you? Aloha. Aloha, how are you? Fine. How are you this evening? I'm wonderful. Thanks for being back on the program, as always. Yeah. Anytime. It's a lot of fun. Yes, good to hear from you. And um, we, uh, you and I have been talking a lot off the air recently, and uh, I think that uh, the first order of business is uh, to uh, bring people up to speed. Let's talk a little bit about what you've been up to. You've been really busy over the last uh, six months. When's the last time we talked? I think we talked oh, in... Well, a few days ago. No, I mean on the air. When's the last time we oh, talked oh, on the air? I think I... it's been probably six months or something. So. Yeah, um, I'm trying to remember. Let's see, you talked with Star, and I think that was after we got back from England. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, very briefly, we went to England last August, and I was there personally for about six months. We got to see London and the British Museum and talked to a lot of people like Robert Temple, and uh, it was a great fun. Whoa. Robert Temple of the serious mystery Robert Temple? Yes. We managed to have dinner with him. Hmm. That must have been amazing. It was. It was, he was just delightful, and he's more brilliant than I even thought. <laughs> now, I mean, let, let's... Uh, let's Let's digress right at the beginning here, because uh, okay. because Temple's work uh, with the Star Sirius had to be somehow related to your and Star's naming of your institution. What's yes, yes, indeed. Maybe, um, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Okay. Well, um, uh, basically, uh, before I had met uh, Star, uh, I had been I had read the Sirius Mystery and thought about. Well, wait a minute. We ought to review what the Sirius Mystery is about. Basically, okay. it's. It's the best evidence I've found for ancient contact with uh, some sort of extraterrestrial being uh, that seems to exist. And um, Temple got on this because of uh, Arthur Young when he, when he was uh, interested in all these things. So Robert Temple spent about eight years researching all this. And the story starts with the Dogon in Africa. And they attribute their civilization to be amphibious beings from Sirius that landed something like 5,000 years ago mm -hmm. and gave them their civilization, the arts of mathematics and music and ritual and how to build temples and all sorts of things. And um, they revere them. They call them the Nomo. <clears throat> also known, they called them the king of the water. And the, Nome, uh, the Dogon know remarkable things about Sirius, like that it's a, a three-star system. The trinary system. Hmm. Um, we did, we got some indication of that about 1884, when um, um, Bessel looked at the place and noticed that Sirius was uh, wiggling, and calculated that there had to be some big heavy mass. And finally, in 1973, we got a picture of it, and it's a white, uh, well, let's see, a, um, basically a neutron star, and it's uh, about the same distance as the Earth from the Sun, and it swings around, and it's so heavy. It's about um, 1.58 times the mass of our sun, mm -hmm. and it's collapsed matter. So if it could exist on this earth, it would be 50,000 pounds a teaspoon. Wow. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the Dogon know that there's a dark companion that's invisible because you need a good telescope to see it. Right. And uh, as far as we know, they zero had any telescopes back then. <laughs> um, and, Michael, the, the Dogon, for the people who aren't familiar with it, the Dogon are a tribe's... Uh, a, a tribe of uh, indigenous people in Africa? Yes, they're in central west Africa, roughly near Timbuktu. <laughs> I'll be damned. <clears throat> and they're on the Niger River. Hmm. And uh, they they know, for example, that the uh, the star goes around uh, Sirius in an elliptic in elliptical orbit that has a period of 50 years. They know about the four moons of Jupiter and the rings of Saturn and all sorts of things like that. And the question was, how? <laughs> Amazing. And so uh, Temple starts there and then tracks it back through the uh, 
Egyptian culture mm -hmm. and the Greeks. And uh, since uh, if you expand the research a little bit, it goes to the same story as in India, China, uh, the Navajo, and at least according to my friend Nassim Haramin, mm. uh, from his research, something like 500 other cultures. Amazing. Um, and it's the same basic story, that amphibious beings from Sirius gave us civilization. <laughs> <laughs> but um, So some people dispute the Dogon evidence. However, uh, Temple proceeds to track it back through Egyptian hieroglyphs and ancient stories about Isis and Osiris. Right. So there's... Sirius was associated with Isis, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and she had a dark companion, Osiris. Mm -hmm. twin, so, yeah. uh, that's the uh, invisible star. And uh, he thinks that the orbit was represented by Anubis. And that um, <clears throat> another thing associated with all these stories is a, a group called the Anunnaki. Mm. And there's always 50 of them. Like there were 50 Argonauts in the Greek tale of Jason and the Argonauts. Sure, yeah. And so Temple concludes that the Anunnaki are just the 50. They always seem to be the same. And so he suggests that it's a symbol for the 50 years of Sirius B's orbit. Interesting. And uh, finally, uh, the punchline of the story is that there's a group of Greeks that lived in North Africa, and that's probably where the Jason and Argonaut legend came from. And they explored westward along the north coast of Africa, reached the Niger River, and went south, and then apparently interbred with the Dogon. So we have the Dogon um, preserving ancient Egyptian and Greek legends. Amazing. <laughs> huh. Wow, yeah, you know, the, I read Robert Temple's book uh, long before I could really grok what he was talking about, to be honest, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And I, I remember, of course, the, the, just the stories about the Dogon stuck with me, but, it's, but, but I didn't really sort of grasp the, the greater implications if he was right. Uh, you know, but it's it's really an amazing story, and the, and, oh, yeah. the, and the fact that they had this knowledge about the star system, that's the that's where the rubber hits the road because because you know you can refute their mythology all you want, but you still have to come up with a solution for how they have this information. Right. Well, there is a debunking position which says that they have gone back through the Dogon and found nobody that knew anything about Sirius, and so on, and that that therefore Griel and Dieterlin, the the anthropologists that wrote it up first were mistaken or made it up themselves or contaminated the uh, hmm. Dogon stories by the news of Sirius, which was fairly current then with, uh, about the second companion star. Hmm. Um, the thing about that is, though, the Dogon or Temple reports that there were four priests that came to Dieterlin and uh, Griol and said they had decided it was time to release their sacred knowledge to the world and that they trusted him. And, it was, and they had major councils and so on to even decide to do that. So I suspect that anybody just sort of bop, bopping through the area and asking about Sirius is probably going to be shot down because it's sacred, secret knowledge. Hmm. That's my guess. Right. Um, the other option is that uh, Dieterlin and Griel made it up. However, uh, he was so respected by the Dogon that when he uh, died, um, there's the Dogon, uh, a tribe called the Bozo, and uh, another tribe. And 250,000 of them showed up for his funeral. My gosh. <laughs> I think he was well-respected. Yeah. So maybe, just maybe, the other people that have been asking are just different. Uh, they're just not of his ilk and uh, were ignored. Huh. But anyway, there is a debunking story out there. On the other hand, that's cleared up by the fact that you can track it through Egypt, Greece, mm. Babylon, um, China, the Navajo... 
Right, all these other tra- all these other traditions, yeah. Yeah. So I think there's something to it. So because of that, uh, we um, we called uh, uh, actually before I even met Scar at uh, John Lilly's 75th birthday party in 1990, she had incorporated a corporation in Canada called the Serious Connection. Mm-hmm. And had actually ginned up a movie outline, which included a, a unit called the Sirius Institute, which did research. <laughs> so we decided to make it real when I, when I met her at John Lilly's party. Amazing. And she became the founding partner of the Sirius Institute and has been a major uh, inspiration and, and uh, just has kept going on this for years for, with lots of, uh, lots of pizzazz and courage. Yeah, Star's wonderful. She's just awesome. So. Yeah, so I... I make great tribute to her and all that she's helped with yes and you guys you guys are a wonderful team doing great stuff together and it's uh, i've been talking about this whole partnership uh idea of you know both men women men men women women whatever being able to work together without uh getting down on each other so much and uh, yeah you, you you guys are a great example of that so well i started reading her diaries for example and the things that were she was writing down were the things that were going through my head at the time it's mm-hmm. like i could have written them amazing so it seemed like a, a great coincidence I, I got to John Lilly's birthday party um, in, with Robert Anton Wilson, of all sure. people. Do you know sure. him? Oh, sure do. I love him. Ah, yes, he was wonderful. So I asked him about the serious uh, connection and things Sure, like he, that. Wrote, he wrote a lot about it. Yeah. And, and he said, well, I'm skeptical of everyone's reality tunnels, even my own. <laughs> <laughs> he would never twig to the fact that it was real. Right. But he definitely was interested. Oh, yeah. He wrote plenty about it in Cosmic Trigger and a couple other ones. So So because of that, we ended up with an institute called the Sirius Institute. Um, Because if you just twist the myth just a little bit, if you want to know who are the rational beings that are in the water that might be able to do something like that, it's obviously the whales and the dolphins. I see. (laughs) And um, just to confirm that, for what it's worth, I was talking with uh, Pat Flanagan once. Uh Uh-huh. You, know, you no, probably know Pat Flanagan. No, who's Pat Flanagan? Oh, Pat Flanagan uh, was, let's see, he's he's a little bit elderly now. He's probably in his 60s. Um, when he was 18, he was considered one of the top ten scientists in the United States. Really? And he was written up because he was so young and brilliant. And he was working on a Gem- Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo, huh. things like that. Wow. Um, he's kind of a electrical engineer, I think, but he does many things. And recently he's been working on things like structured water. Ah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he was put onto that by Henry Kwanda, who found that um, there were six or seven places, the two that I remember are the Hunza region and Villa Cabamba in Peru, I believe, uh, where people live reliably to over 100, like 114, some reports out to 135. (laughs) And he found, Henry Kwanda found that there was something special about the water. So at one point, Flanagan got on that and recreated the Hunza water. Interesting. And it's kind of a long story, but basically you end up with fine glacial dust, you know, loose, that's uh, coated with organic stuff and charged by swirling through the river. Mm-hmm. So you end up with a suspension of, of particles that are electrets that structure the water. Very and this uh, increases its, um, uh, re- decreases its surface tension, so it's like adding soap. Huh. And also, um, that increases its solubility product. So it's roughly equivalent uh, in uh, being able to dissolve, dissolve things. It's roughly equivalent to boiling water. <laughs> but, at, at room temperature. At room temperature, huh. right. Right. And so it cleans cleans the body very nicely. Well, I and, understand, yeah. And so Flanagan attributes at least part of the long lifespan of the Hunza to the water. 
and he's marketing products that will, will activate water that way. Very interesting. So he and I were talking because he worked with uh, Wayne Bateau about gee, 55 years ago or so with the Navy on Coconut Island off Oahu. And Wayne Bateau and he were teaching Hawaiian to the dolphins. They had him up to about 50 words. Um, and they had a frequency translator that would uh, increase the frequency from our range up to about 50 kilohertz by a heterodyne method so that whatever you said would be translated into their frequency band. So it would be sped up in effect? Yes. It was, well, not sped up, but just increased in frequency. Okay. So okay. something like, uh, like uh, aloha, let's see, he'd say something like aloha, imua, which means attention, and then puka was the dolphin's name, and then he would go off with some sort of command. So <laughs> it would be something like puka, imua, and it would come out like... Right, right, right. I got you. For the dolphins. And they were working on a back translator that would take the dolphin sound and translate it back to our frequency band. Right, amazing. And about the time they were ready to build that, for whatever reason, Wayne Bateau went swimming and died of a heart attack is the main story. Hmm. Um, and then the uh, projects that they were working on were taken over by the Navy and driven black and classified, and we haven't heard much from them since. <laughs> when, what was the time frame for that again, Mike? Um, about 50 years ago. Wow, unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and uh, Flanagan happened to be working with Bateau during that era. And that's when Lily got involved. I mean, he didn't really get yeah. involved till 55 or so. Yes, that's right. That's right. So they were roughly contemporary. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they, they were definitely overlapped. I mean, Lily was doing his thing about the time Bateau was. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure they knew each other and so on. But Bateau was also one that initiated all these experiments where the, they had pilot whales and dolphins searching for and picking up torpedoes mm -hmm. and all sorts of other things. Mm -hmm. Um, Flanagan, so Flanagan and I were talking, and he said one of the tricks they used to do is they would sit as quietly as they could on the on the near the pond where the dolphins were, and they would think about a place in the water, and the dolphins would show up there. Then hmm. they'd think of another place and they'd show up there, and so on. They did that for hours, right. and the and the game was to stay as still as possible to give them absolutely zero cue, and they still did it. So I said, did you? throw that in the Navy reports, he says, nah, they wouldn't have known what to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> so after about an hour and a half, we were talking about all kinds of things like that, and right. he says, why did you call your institute at the Serious Institute? And all of a sudden, my scientist part goes, uh, him, ha, uh, right, right, right. <laughs> how do I get out of this one? Oh my God. I say, well, there's these legends about Sirius right. and dolphins, and he laughs on the other end of the phone and says, I think they're from Sirius too. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> That's great, huh? You know, it's really funny, Michael, how many uh, quote-unquote straight scientists, you know, if you get them, uh, you know, if you get them in, in the back room or throw a couple cocktails down their throat or something, you know, they're not quite as uh, as stiff as you might think. It's just Correct. They, it's just they don't, they're, it's just... It's just dangerous to their careers if they if they go public with a lot oh, of it. Correct. You know, correct. amazing, yeah. amazing. Absolutely, and I've, I've run into that a lot. We can even talk about that a bit if you want. But yeah, I think yeah. it's one of the major hang-ups we've got in the current science. Yeah, me too. And and uh, I I think it's worth talking about. Let's let's go back to England just for a minute okay. and wrap wrap that up. So so right. you saw Robert Temple. What else were you there for? Oh, um, our uh, our partner Napier Martin, mm -hmm. uh, who is very connected to the. Uh, the dolphins, and he especially likes belugas, but he ended up having some amazing experiences in south-central Australia at a place called the Nullarbor Cliff okay. with a tribe called the Mearing. And he arranged the first time that the Mearing got on their own land for years, something like 70 years, and they had a ceremony. 
and he was included, kind of like an initiation. Wow, cool. And their shamans went down and played didgeridoo, didgeridoo which is officially called a yadaki by the aboriginals. Mm -hmm. Didgeridoo is a made-up English word. They're really yadaki. Anyway, they played those, and hundreds of right whales showed up at the cliff wow. and proceeded to dance for them. Like two or three, like a mom and a baby came out and danced for about 15 minutes, and then they went away, and another group came, and another group, and another group, and it went on for like eight hours. And by dance, what do you mean? Well, they'd, they'd uh, like uh, jump out of the water and roll and spin right, right in front of the cliff. Like, oh, cool. Like, uh, you know, 40 feet away. I love it. I love it. It went on for like eight hours, and they got about five hours of it on film, I understand. Oh, my gosh. They, they were making a film called The Eyes of the Soul of the Dolphin. Oh, my gosh. So uh, somewhere along the line, uh, Napier Martin showed up at John Lilly's birthday party mm -hmm. at, on Maui this time. And right. we connected with him, and he came to stay with us on Maui. And he says that what we told him about dolphins and such, plus his own experiences with the whales, uh, which were very deep, um, changed his life basically <laughs> so he managed to put together a, a, a CD of music kind of trance dance kind of music it's pretty neat if you go to planetpuna.com and you'll find a link to the cetacea project yes yes and that'll take you to a place where you can at least hear some samples of the music so um, Napier was having a uh, introductory party and invited us to England to participate because he said it was important to him that we be there. Huh, wonderful. And, and one of the neat things that happened is I got to play the didgeridoo for the first 20 minutes of the show. So I got to open the show. <laughs> How great, Michael. Yeah. And we were out at a, out at a place called Sopley Farm, and it had a, a quarry lake and uh, woods, and we basically camped there for a week for the show. Uh, the show ended up with a 16 kilowatt audio system. It was really wonderful, uh -huh. and um, we had to have generators and uh, a, a kitchen tent, a video and, and audio tent, and all kinds of things. It was it was quite a show. Wow. Um, well, um, we'll have to uh, we'll have to get uh, we'll have to get that video, and we'll get it to Larry, and we'll get him to do some editing, and we'll get a way to get that stuff up on oh, the web, good. so people okay. can share, we can share that with some people. I well, think that's wonderful. Right. And for the moment, um, uh, if you go to, again to planetbuna.com, on the top left, if you scroll down, it says some pictures of our journey to England. They need more labels and stuff, but you can get an idea what we, we did. And we managed to see things like Stonehenge and Glastonbury and the British Museum. And it was the first time I'd ever been there. And then to have a treat like dinner with Robert Temple, it was just like miracle time. Wow, that is amazing. <laughs> and then uh, we worked on a number of projects. Um, and Napier is, is announcing that, that something will come. At, uh, he's working on something that should come very soon, we hope. All right. All right. Um, well, great news. So we can get rolling some, again on all this. And then finally, um, about November, uh, a Japanese film crew called me and wanted to interview me. And we were going to go to Florida, but ended up with uh, Wilma. Uh, the Florida dolphin places were kind of trash for the moment. So we ended up doing the interview in Hawaii, and they flew me back. And that was uh, broadcast on Tokyo, uh, I'm sorry, TV Tokyo. Okay. So uh, let's see. And since then, we've just been catching up with things. And let's see. Um, well, I wanted to dedicate this to my mom. I, oh. we, just, we just lost her. She was 91. She was absolutely crucial to everything I, I've done because uh, um, basically all these projects have yet to really pay off economically. <laughs> she kept us going many, many times. And so I, I had 
I just want to thank her for everything she did for us. And the inspiration of her and my dad got me where I am. And I just saw my home back in Illinois, and it was really, really nice. I mean, well, some aspects were nice to be home and everything. But it was sad to have lost my mom. Well, Michael, I know, you know, we're, uh, people may not know this, but you and I are from the same hometown, as a matter of fact, both born in Rockford, and you were raised not far from there in Winnebago. Right. And, uh, um, I know I, I you know I knew you were there and I know you guys were going through some rough stuff but uh, but my heart goes out to you and uh, and to moms everywhere what would we do without them and uh, oh yeah you know so uh, so here's to her okay yeah. and let's uh, let's take a break there I'll play a play a song here for her and okay. uh, this is actually I've been I'm featuring some music tonight from my friend whose name is Lisa Walker and she you might be familiar. I played one of her songs once before when you were on the air. She's yeah. the girl who plays the violin and she does it through a hydrophone and then records the whale songs uh, back and then incorporates that into her music. It's beautiful. So, yeah, yeah, anyway, um, uh, to your mama, Michael. Thank you. All right, this is called Boogie. We'll be back in just a few minutes with Michael Heisen and uh, we'll talk for another hour and a half. Thanks, Michael. Back in just a few minutes. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And this is Lisa Walker from Grooved Whale.
website. More great stuff there from Lisa Walker from Grooved Whale. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And I'm on the line here with my good friend, Dr. Michael Heisen, coming to us live from the, the Big Island, I think. Right, Michael? Yes, live from the Big Island, from the district of Puna. All right. And what is it there? I think it's probably about 7.30 in the evening, your time. Yes, about 7.30. All right. If you hear some uh, what sounds like birds in the background, those I are do. the cokey frogs. Oh, really? Those are frogs? I was for sure, I was certain those were birds chirping in the background. They move here from uh, Puerto Rico somehow. <laughs> they seem to have come in maybe through Walmart plants. We're, we're <laughs> not quite sure. They're now up to eight thousand per acre in places. Mike, what, they, what, what is it? The law of unintended consequences? <laughs> something like that. Yeah. And I figure since uh, something like forty percent of the amphibians are in trouble around the planet. Maybe they had to move. Yeah, hey, so, you know, they'll find their way. Yeah. They'll find their way. It's, you know, it's amazing. I, was, I, I spoke to uh, Dennis McKenna and Stephen Buhner last week, and both of them made this, uh, uh, this striking point about plants. You know, we were talking about intelligence and nature and just talking mm -hmm. about uh, the plant kingdom, and they both uh, were very clear about this idea that, that, you know, the plant world is more mobile than we think as well, and the plants also will find their way uh, to get to certain places where they need to be, and it's remarkable how it actually happens, but it's oh, really something else. It's getting amazing. I understand we now have bacterial samples from rock 25 miles down, that kind of thing, maybe oh, yeah. 250 miles down. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, life in places and environments where we would never have ever even uh, given it the, 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 the smallest of chances. And, and another amazing thing to conjure with is how long do you suppose if you, say, introduce a new gene into a particular bacteria mm -hmm. in England, how long before it goes across the whole planet? Just yeah. guess. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, well, it turns out it's two weeks. <laughs> two weeks. Yeah. So the bacteria and everything share genes quickly enough to get something around the planet in under a month. Hey, let me ask you a question about that, a, a, a biology question, okay? Okay. You know, there's, you know, people talk about evolution and all this stuff, and there's all this debate, but one of the places where I think it's pretty easy to see evolution is at uh, a microbial scale, right? Because these mm -hmm. things, the, the, they, they have such quick generations. In other words, they reproduce and die so quickly that you can see a whole boatload of generations in a pretty short period of time, right? That's correct. And then you can see... Uh, mutations or whatever that get tossed out from the normal expression, right? Mm -hmm. So, in a case like that, um, I mean, what what does that say about just just biology in general? About how susceptible we really are to change? I mean, it seems to oh. me that I mean it could happen at any moment. I mean, it's changing all the time. I mean, certainly all the time. Um, there's some r remarkable films by a guy named Eshel Ben Jacob in uh, at the University of Tel Aviv. Mm -hmm. And he's got these uh, pictures of what bacteria do when you stress them. And they stream. They form these beautiful patterns. They exchange genes. Uh, they, and what he says is that you should consider the bacterial colony as the organism. Mm. They exchange genes uh, among themselves so that, so that some of the bacteria can fiddle with theirs. And if they screw up, others still re will remember. So, for example, when a new sugar comes in, a bacteria will do... Um, an addition and two deletions to change its own DNA so that it makes the new enzyme. So that sounds pretty remarkable. Remarkable. Yeah, remarkable. <laughs> well, yeah, I like remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> Remember Lamarck, the inheritance of acquired characteristics? Wow. So here, by the standard biological dogma, you're not, you're not supposed to be 
screwing around with your own DNA, and here the bacteria do it all the time. They rewrite their own code on the fly. <laughs> huh, just to deal with new things they encounter in the environment. Yeah, right. Wow. And then, and then I don't know, since we're talking about plants and intelligence, there's uh, mushroom colonies that are, you know, hyphae that are acres in extent, mm -hmm. uh, as much as 5,000, possibly 10,000 years old. And they've been growing there forever. Yeah, and huge mycelium colonies underneath the ground. Right. Yeah. And they go for acres. Right. And and if you do a genetic sample of different regions, you'll find different genetics because they have different genetics depending on what they have there to digest and eat. Huh. So, um, and they have connections that look like a brain, really. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so. and I think that... Uh, there have been studies done that look at the complexity of those connections, Michael, and they find things like, yeah, they're as highly complex as the human cerebrum, you right, know? Right, right. Uh, and, you know, I, ha I have a particular interest in, in mushrooms, and, man, there is something there for sure, a real, oh, yeah. a real intelligence there. Very much, very much. When I finally realized what was going on, there's a thing called, that they call mycorrhizal yes. association. Yes, that happens underground again, the root yeah. structures, yeah. They're symbiotic with the root hairs of the plants. And they drive their hyphae right through the cells. And it turns out it's the mushrooms that are, or the, the fungi that are actually digesting the rock grains to make soluble mil minerals to feed the plants. But they're also, I'm sure, sending things like, um, I don't know, control signals and stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, I was thinking about this, and I figured we named the rainforest in Brazil wrong. It's really, you could call it the brain forest. <sighs> all the trees are connected by these um, hyphal nets. So it becomes this one big symbiotic organism. And um, the, mu the mushrooms are sitting there using neurotransmitters like psilocybin right. to do something with. Maybe they're thinking in some way. Yeah. And if you put all that together and accept that, then um, the forest could be a super organism. And we can might as well call it the brain forest. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. We, we, tonight's our, our, our play on words show. I love it. I got it. <laughs> yeah. We have Lamarkable now in the brain forest. So. Right. Right. Wow, yeah, it's true. It really is true. The more the more I learn about it, the more astonishing it becomes. This whole uh the 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 connectivity of all of these organisms is what is really the remarkable thing because we have this idea, you know, in the west and you know, it starts with the individual, you know, we have this idea like Dennis says that we stop at the skin, right? <laughs> Uh, and yeah. but but we and we extend that same metaphor to all these other creatures, including trees and shrubs and mm -hmm. you know and and mushrooms or whatever. But but just like we don't really stop at the skin, we are semi-permeable membranes that have uh, you know things moving in and out of our systems all the time. Right. Same thing with these uh, these other situations. They are all interconnected and become one big giant organism that Absolutely. that eventually becomes the the guy in mind. I guess is the extrapolation. Yeah, that's what Lovelock says, and I think he's right. Yeah, and then then you say, well, if if something <clears throat> say at our scale can have consciousness, maybe something bigger can have consciousness too. Why not? I mean, uh, we we certainly know that dolphins and whales do. Yes. Right, and they're yes. bigger. Yes, they finally taught me that. <laughs> it took a while. Um, let's see. Let, uh, let, let me let me ask you about that. that. That's interesting because I've really never really asked you about your level of skepticism when you got involved. You know, you've been involved with dolphins and whales for a long time, the dolphins in particular. But mm -hmm. uh, you know, even as a young man. You, but but you're you're a scientist. I mean, you're a, yeah. you're a scientist and. Uh, for the people out there who are listening uh, to Michael for the first time, I mean, he's a Ph.D. 
neurobiologist and yeah. marine biologist, and he and his credentials are as long as the program. Uh, so, um, I, I'm interested in uh, in your position. You know, before you uh, really got the knowledge that you have now, I mean, what did you think about? Did you just think they were just another animal that was interesting? Maybe for a while, <clears throat> but I was I grew up with a lot of pets. I had everything from uh, raccoons and foxes, lots of hawks and owls. Mm -hmm. I raised a couple of owls. I uh, had a particular falcon that I liked a lot. Oh, man. And uh, then I got into caving and found out about bats and sonar, which is how I got to dolphins. But for a time there, I even had pet bats. So <laughs> um, I read a lot about the animals, and they always said, well, they're instinct-driven. But every animal I've ever run into that I had any close dealings with had a personality. Right. It was unique to them. And they did things like play. Right. <clears throat> and if you read the books, they say, nah, you can't have sharks playing. But I had a, I knew a shark named Murgatroyd that played with marbles. <laughs> okay. And they, and, and, uh, uh, he was a little baby nurse shark in, in Florida that I got to meet. Um, and then the birds I had always had different personalities. And they would, I would go to school and they'd say something like, well, they're only coming to you because they're hungry. But one day, for example, I fed my falcon up until she was so stuffed she could barely breathe and she was still hanging on to another piece of meat waiting for something to digest so she could swallow it. And at that point, she's totally full, right? She hops, she looks at me, hops over to my hand and tucks up on one leg and puts her head under her wing and goes to sleep. Oh, now she wants to be with you. She's like, thanks for that great meal, Mike. Yeah, and then she hopped over to sleep on my hand. Oh, that's awesome. You know, so... We were always very close, and as far as I could tell, they were very conscious beings. Sure, sure. So I would go to school, and I'd capitalize their names, and they'd say, you can't do that. I'd say, why not? They deserve it. <laughs> and then they'd say, well, they're just like meat machines. You know, they're just instinct and all that. And I kept going, you've you got to be kidding. You know? <laughs> yeah, anybody that's had a, a relationship with a dog or a cat, I mean, this is self-evident, you know? Right, right. But anyway, so there was always this cognitive dissonance between the biology I was being taught and what I really knew. Mm. But, you know, for various reasons, you kind of suppress the thought after a while. Right. And I went off to be pretty much professional. But I had met the dolphins when I was, uh, well, anyway, basically playing with bats led me to John Lilly's books. I was reading John Lilly's Man and Dolphin when Man my brother, and yeah. Man and Dolphin, 1962, I Amazing book. And um, uh, they were teaching him English. Uh, Elvar and Tolga were learning English, right. doing pretty well. Right. They could imitate English in the air with their blowholes. Mm -hmm. That's sort of like belching through your nose and trying to speak. Um, and, you know, Lilly didn't, didn't have the uh, interface right then to be able to, um, you know, uh, make a sonic interface. He did that later in a program called uh, Janus. But anyway, then he was he had decided to teach him English in, and speak it in the air, and they were doing pretty well. And about the same time, my brother was graduating high school and needed a summer job and was offered a training dolphin job in Texas. Mm -hmm. And he was about to turn it down when I showed him this book. <laughs> so long story short, he goes to Texas to train dolphins, and I got to live with the dolphins for a summer helping him. Amazing. And uh, then went off to Florida for a biology um, program there with sharks and a lady named Eugenie Clark, um, who taught me how to scuba dive. So I learned all about sharks in the sea, and eventually ended up at University of Miami, where I ended up uh, got three degrees. So when I finally got to meet the dolphins again, um, I had been fully trained in ecology and animal behavior and some neurophysiology at that point, and the the academic opinion was dolphins were 
uh, at least as intelligent as dogs and maybe as intelligent as chimpanzees. <laughs> and I went out to meet him and realized that's hogwash. Right. <laughs> right. These guys are very bright. Right. And so my model then was just show me what it is to be a dolphin and I want to play by your rules and learn as much as I can. Hmm. What and was I, your... Michael, what was your first uh, sort of wow moment where you went, wait, this is not what I was told? My wow moment. Uh, or did well, you have one? It was just a collective thing. Uh, it's, it, it eventually sinks in over a long term, but the one I remember even in Texas when I was just meeting him is we were trying to teach a dolphin to just kick this little football back to us. So we had the football on a, on a rope, right. and it was tied around the middle of the football, and we'd throw it out there, and if he touched the thing, then we'd throw him a fish. If he hit it toward us, we're going to throw him a fish. Right. So he came up and touched it, and we threw him a fish. Yeah. And then he came up and didn't uh, just just uh, rolled it over. But that wasn't hitting it toward us, so we didn't, re didn't reward him. Right. So he came up again, and he very carefully rolled the ball along its long axis and then looked at us. No fish. Then he came up and very carefully pushed on one side and turned it clockwise and flipped it over. No fish. He came to the other side, uh, flipped it over the other way counterclockwise, and looked at it. No fish. Right. And finally, it was just so frustrated, he went whap and made a big splash, and it happened to splash it toward us, so we threw him a fish. Right. He was so confused, he went away and wouldn't talk to us for about 20 minutes. Uh -huh. <laughs> but the absolute precision with which he came up and did everything he could think of Rolling it precisely right. was just amazing. Right. Let's see, maybe left, maybe right, maybe along the long axis. Right. Uh, well, what else can you do with a ball? Right. <laughs> amazing. What a, what, what a, I mean, really, what an interesting story. Yeah. yeah. And another one that really blew my mind was uh, I, was, I got to meet an uh, orca named Hugo that was one of the first orcas in captivity at the University, or, I'm sorry, excuse me, the uh, Miami Seaquarium. Yeah. And I had managed to, to uh, shake flipper and tongue with him. You go up and say, Hugo, tongue, and he put out this huge tongue, and you could shake hands with it, you know, <laughs> about a 20-pound tongue. You know? <laughs> but anyway, he was really cool. And uh, uh, my professor then was Hank Truby, and yeah, his yeah. youngest son at the time, Nicky, used to swim with Hugo, and Hugo would put him crossways in his mouth on his teeth and give him a ride around the pond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. You know, it's such a misnomer the idea of a killer whale. I mean, the, I mean, oh, yeah. obviously, uh, if they want to, they can be very violent. We can see what they can do to a seal or a, or, or a, a sea lion or something. But, but there's no. Uh, uh, that's you know one of the remarkable things. There's no recorded uh, incidents of of aggression against a human being. It's absolutely uh, it's out outrageous. Certainly by the free ones. Yeah. Unfortunately, in the last couple of years, there have been a few uh, mishaps. In captivity. In captivity. Well, I mean... And there was, one, there was one death associated with the orcas. I don't know the details. It was up in Vancouver at some aquarium there, and I asked Star about it, and she said, oh, those people are slime. Hmm. So you, you never get the public story of what was really going on between, say, the trainer and the dolphin. Yeah, how the but, dolphin... But you're absolutely right. It's so rare uh, that in thousands of years of history, most of the stories are that they help us. Yeah, I, and I mean, to me, uh, I saw a remarkable thing on, I don't know, Discovery Channel or Learning Channel years ago, and it was a documentary about the uh, the capture of an orca whale, mm -hmm. right? And, right? And one that was going to be, I don't know, you know, it's going to become, a, you know, Sea World or whatever. There were four divers, and uh, the four divers, um, you know, the long story short, they sort of uh, maneuvered the whale uh, toward 
the toward the shore, toward the beach, and then onto this uh, like a stretcher type of deal, right? Mm-hmm. Big thing though, but I mean it's a big animal. It's an eight thousand, right. nine thousand pound animal, yeah. right? Which if it wanted to, could just chomp on every one of those divers, no problem. Absolutely. Right? And I and that's what I was blown away by. I'm like, why? It was almost like it was pretty much just being led along, like it like it was going along out of its own will, Michael. I think that's the case. And, um, and I, that's the only thing I could think of, because yeah. if it wanted to get away, it could have. I, it seemed, I mean, they didn't drug it or anything, and, and right. if it wanted to, they could have, it could have just chomped on those guys. That's right. That's right. Um, it may be a, a, well, it's obviously a speculative statement, but I think that some of the dolphins and orcas choose to be captured so that they can teach us. Hmm. It's a hard job. My God. But, but to give a sort of a quick human analogy, if you will, if you were a population taking two million plus casualties a year from human activity, uh, you'd probably have suicide squads ready to do anything they could think of that might help. And so if I were a dolphin general, Maybe we'd send some of them to teach us a thing or two. You know, and and uh, it it really gives me a chill when you say that because I think of all the work that was happening back in the 50s and 60s and the effort. Obviously, it's not easy for a dolphin to try to speak English out of its blowhole. Right. And the the, the point is that these creatures are just uh, frantic to communicate with us. It okay. seems like, and 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 thank God, Michael, that, that there are people <laughs> like you out there that are just as frantic to communicate back. Because it, uh, the if we can bridge that gap, my gosh, I, I mean, yeah. who, who knows what is beyond it. Right. I'd like to think we could get 30 million years of our history sorted out, at least from the dolphin and whale point of view. Well, and uh, let's clarify that for the listeners. Uh, Depending on whose numbers you trust, uh, somewhere between 15 and 30 million years, the dolphins and whales have had brain sizes equal to or exceeding our own. So you've got things like the sperm whales out there with six or seven times our brain size. And uh, we think they're libraries. hard to have paper, for example. Right, right. And so we think that they hold what they have in memory. And that's been, of course, it's a speculation, but that's what we think. So suppose you could talk to a sperm whale that contains the, uh, maybe the collective legends of all the cetaceans. Hmm. You know, we might learn a lot. Amazing. Since they've had brain sizes like ours, or better, for 30, 15 to 30 million years, we could put together pretty much our entire history, at least from their point of view. Let's let's talk a little bit about brain size. Ah. Uh, why for for people out there who don't know a lot about neurology or whatever, why why would a big brain doesn't a big brain just go with a big body? Okay, that was that was an older um, idea. That's about where Lily started in the 50s, and that was the idea that somehow dolphins and whales were just big and so they had big brains. But he went looking at that and. Uh, uh, just very quickly, you hardly expect a hand calculator to do the job of, say, a supercomputer, mm, right? True. So there's got to be some general relationship between the number of cells, number of connections, and what the brain can do. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's, that got, well, anyway, that's a long discussion. But basically, <laughs> at least for memory and things like that, that seems to be the case. So uh, Lily looked at the, at the dolphin and whale brains, and what he found was that, uh, yes, indeed, they had large brains. They weren't quite the same, say, brain weight to body weight ratio that we have. They weren't quite up to snuff there. But there are so many different statistics you can do, like the, like the diameter of the spinal cord to the body weight ratio and so on. But the main thing he found out was that um, the expansion of the brain was in the neocortex. 
that the uh, limbic system, the things that the limbic system, motor systems, all those things he called the microcomputer, everything up to say um, the reptile brain, if you will. Right. Uh, that part stayed the same size across all brains, like humans and dolphins right, and right. sperm whales. Yeah, nearly identical, as a matter of fact. Right. And so uh, he said that uh, if if it was just a matter of controlling a big body, that part should have changed size, but it didn't. And you can make an argument that since a dolphin and whale are floating in the water and they don't have to compute gravity all the time, that they've actually got a lot more processing power left over because they don't have to balance. Oh, because we're always worried about balancing because of yeah. gravity. Okay. Lily estimated something at least like 50%. I think it was a higher percentage that he estimated of all our compute power was just to be able to stand up. <laughs> um, in any case, so there's that extra processing capability available. Plus, just a dolphin has a... About a, I don't know, uh, 30% larger brain, uh, and about 40% of that, uh, I'm sorry, a 40% bigger association cortex. And then if you look at the sperm whale, the entire expansion is in the neocortex. And for your listeners, that's uh, the part that we think is required for thinking, personality, creativity, and so on. Right, right. Abstract part thought, that problem solving. Yes, yes. And so it, in the sperm whale, you can actually see another layer starting. <laughs> really? A fourth layer, yeah. <laughs> wow. The neo neocortex. Yeah, the neo neocortex. Huh. Yeah. And it's just amazing. So um that's partly what got Lily so interested in them. They had such large brains. And um very quickly he found out that they were also very conscious and very intelligent. Like he hooked up Elvar to a, a stimulator. He had an electrode in the pleasure center for Elvar and to uh, give him special motivation to solve the language problem. Okay. And uh, he wanted to see what would happen if he could self-stimulate. So he's rigging a switch um, so that Elvar can hit it with his uh, uh, beak. And Elvar is hitting the switch before he can even get it plugged in because he'd figured out what it was going to do. <laughs> <laughs> like within minutes, you know, that's seconds, minutes. That's great. Um, dolphins also learn things like in one try. They just get it. I mean, it's just so amazing. So a lot of the behaviorist stuff they've done with dolphins is just totally boring to them. They understand the entire situation in the first few trials, and then we insist on running hundreds to get statistical significance, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so every once in a while they get bored and um, curl a saltwater wave through your rack of equipment. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> All right, like look, that. Michael, I yeah. think uh, that's a good t good chance for us to take a break here, okay? Break, okay. Um, we'll come back, and I have, the, I've got a couple questions that have come in from listeners that we probably need to address, and then, um, and then we'll talk about whatever else we want, okay? All right. Okay, back in few, uh, a few minutes, everybody. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, and my guest is Dr. Michael Heisen. You can find out information about the wonderful work that Michael does. Uh, at uh, www.planetpuna, P-L-A-N-E-T-P-U-N-A dot com. And you can also uh, find information at uh, the Sirius Institute. And, Michael, what is the, what's the website for the Sirius Institute? Oh, it's the same thing, planetpuna.com slash Sirius. And uh, okay. on the uh, left column of Planet Puna is pretty much uh, devoted to the Sirius Institute work. So left column is Sirius, middle column is Puna, and right column is uh, uh, other links. Okay, sounds great. All right, everybody, uh, that was Michael, and uh, check him out. Like I said, planetpuna.com. All right, we'll have another song here from Lisa Walker. 
This is from Grooved Whale, and it's called Vertigo. We'll be back in just a few minutes and uh, talk some more.
All right, that's Vertigo from Lisa Walker, Grooved Whale. More information about Lisa at GroovedWhale.com. All right, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. My guest is Dr. Michael Heisen, and uh, Michael can be contacted, and you can learn about him and his work at www.planetpuna, P-L-A-N-E-T-P-U-N-A.com. And, uh, Michael, thanks for sticking around. Yes. Hey, let's, uh, you know, you and me, when we start talking, we go all over the place, as always. Right. But uh, let's uh, go back to Hugo. I want to hear the end of the story of the um, ah, yes. our, right. our, our, uh, the orca whale, Hugo, right? Right. And um, he was at uh, Miami Seaquarium. He was one of the first in captivity. Right. And I did get to meet him. And one day I was just walking by his tank, and I had in my hand one of these orange drink things that they put out. It's like a plastic orange about the size of a softball that they put orange mm-hmm. drink in mm-hmm. right. and I was sitting there at the window looking at, at Hugo and he came by and put his eye right next to the window Right. and I, I wonder whether it was his idea induced in me or my idea I wonder mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I got this idea that I could play catch with him even with the window there um, so um, I showed him the orange ball and he looked at it mm-hmm. and then I backed up about four feet and I made a big show of winding up, you know, swinging my arm around like I'm going to throw it. Like one, right. two, three. And I threw it and bounced it on the window. Uh-huh. And and Hugo backpedaled in the water. I mean, he's a huge guy. He's like 20 feet, you know. Right. <laughs> and he backpedals in the water. And if you had extrapolated the path of the ball uh, in air, yeah. but it was actually in the water. It would have been in the water, right? Right, right, right. If, if the window wouldn't have been there. Right, as if the window and the water weren't there. He backpedaled in the water and opened his mouth and pretended to catch the ball. Amazing. At the place it would have been in air. Yeah. And we did that like five times till he got bored. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, okay, get it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm smart so, too. <laughs> so talk about abstract thought. That's no what got kidding. me to that level. That's amazing, Michael. And, and uh, uh, oh, jeez. Anyway, things like that. And then well, see, you... You know, this. I, I, I want you to address something because... That's the thing. It's that, you know, that could happen and probably does happen uh, to people with dolphins and whales all the time in in captivity and otherwise. In other mm-hmm. words, the dolphin or the whale will show uh, clear evidence of abstract thought like that. But most people, they, uh, and maybe I shouldn't prejudge, but I think that there is certainly a percentage of people that would just go, oh, what a cute little dolphin or whatever. Look what yeah. he did. And not really uh, n- not really grok what is happening there. Right. And and some things, it certainly took me years to really realize what it meant. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I'm sure it continues. Oh, yeah, definitely. Every time I put a what I consider a complete model in my head about dolphins, uh-huh. they will usually do something often out of the corner of my eye, right at the end of our time together, very subtly, they'll do something that just blew the model. Right. Just push it a little bit further. It's like they know when I'm thinking, almost, and uh, and they do something to mess up my model again. <laughs> so at the moment, I just have open models. I think we've yet to know what they can do totally in any way, um, and they continue to surprise me. <laughs> Well, I think that's great, and I think it's a great metaphor for human beings as well. I mean, I think we're an open model as well, and I think we are not uh, uh, yet reached our own potential. So, anyway, hey, let's. uh, I had a question came in from uh, a gentleman who listens to the program and has heard you before, and he says, "Can you ask Michael Heisen uh, 
about the pink Indo-Pacific humpback dolphin. Now, he doesn't ask anything specific about him, and I don't know a whole lot, but I mean, I don't know. Do you know anything about that dolphin? um, Only a little. I understand there's a group of them at Tin Can Bay, I think, in New Zealand, Uh and and they've been interacting with people there, and there's there's only a few of them, so there's a situation of how to preserve them while letting people be around them and so on. Mm -hmm. A lot of people want to be. So uh, they're basically highly endangered. Uh, We don't we only know a little bit about them. I understand they're called the Susu in China, and there's a population of about 200 near the mouth of the Yangtze River. Mm-hmm. And people are worried about coastal development and harbors and um, some damming of the Yangtze that's going on and oh, all kinds yeah. of other things that affect their environment. So they're really on the edge environmentally. Um, but they're they're um, they're uh, pink or white when they're adult. Yeah. And um, I, at least the susu in China, I think, uh, live in freshwater. Oh, really? I'm right. Like, is it estuarial or something yeah, like that? Yeah, estuary, yeah. Hmm. So, um, and they're shallow water guys. They're about um, uh, nine feet long and, what was it, about 400 pounds. Wow. Like that. Still a big animal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh,. Anyway, that's about all I know. I'm sorry. There's, okay. There's well, not... no, no. It was just it just came in, so I figured I'd ask you about it. Yeah. And uh, and and for uh, the young man who asked, uh, if you have anything specific, just uh, forward an email to me or to Michael, and I'm sure he'd be glad to to look further into Absolutely. it for you. So. Sure. Okay. Uh, let's see. Um, um, let me catch up a little bit on, on on just the history of how all this happened. Okay. Uh, very quickly. Um, yeah. uh, with all these experiences in Texas and then at the University of Miami and Hugo. Oh, eventually yeah, yeah, ran yeah. into uh, a fellow named Hank Truby, right. who was John Lilly's linguist when they were teaching Elvar and Tolva English. <laughs> and he worked with Lilly about 17 years. And Truby was an amazing guy. 250 publications, spoke 14 languages, played professional tennis for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Just an amazing dude. Helped invent voice printing and things at Bell Labs. Wow. So I got to be one of his major students and a friend of his family uh, for a dozen years. And we had a dolphin project with uh, two dolphins that we called Florida, the female, and Liberty, the male. Mm-hmm. And we had them in a pond in, uh, on Key Biscayne for about two years. And I got to swim with them a lot. And we were looking for funding to get communication and other things going again. Right. Uh, it didn't quite work out, but we did have them for two years, and something like 2,000 people probably came by and saw them. Wow. They'd bring their babies, they'd bring their picnic lunch and just watch, they'd go swimming with them, the dolphins would come up and say hi to the babies, and they were always supremely gentle. It was just wonderful to have them. So one night in particular, I got to swim with them and um, just put my hands out, and they put their dorsal fins, one in each hand, so I had twin-engine dolphins, and they dragged me all over the pond. And uh, shortly, just to give another indication of how bright they are, they know exactly how long you can hold your breath. So for a little while, I was concerned about whether I was going to be able to breathe. But then I noticed that every time I had the desire to breathe that was serious, um, they would roll me up to the top of the water so I could get a breath. Really? So they somehow had some intuitive way of knowing that? Absolutely. What do you figure that is, Michael? Well, I don't know. I guess uh, since they are conscious breathers and every breath is a conscious act right they don't they don't sleep in other words per se right. they sleep maybe uh, one hemisphere at a time mm. when they're actually resting they'll they'll send one hemisphere through a dream cycle they'll go down through REM sleep and uh, delta wave sleep for a while 45 or 90 minute cycle and then switch hemispheres Amazing. so they're awake with one hemisphere or two and they're never they're always awake they're mm. always awake and they're conscious breathers which are which is unique 
because if you knock us out, we'll keep breathing. You right. knock a dolphin out, they'll stop breathing. Right. So the other dolphins will hold hold the dolphins. If a dolphin gets knocked out, the other dolphins will hold him up and they'll punch him, they'll ram him in the belly and things like that to keep him breathing, mm -hmm. sort of, until they wake up. And uh, so I think it's built in. That's one of the main things they watch out for. You know, they're, they're watching each other's backs, so to speak. Right, and they do the same thing for you. Right. Amazing. So they know they just somehow have a, a total knowledge Outrageous. of when I needed to breathe. So when I realized that, I just relaxed, knowing that I could just pay attention to having a good time, and when I needed to breathe, they'd roll me up to get a breath. <laughs> <laughs> so we did that for about an hour. <laughs> and um, so that was another major uh, realization. Right. And one day they, they came at me... Um, and rolled me into a little ball and took me down about 20 feet and rolled me around and around and around and I was being hugged between them. And when we came up for that, something had changed in our relationship and mm. basically it seemed like I had then been inducted into their pod. Wow. From then on, I could do anything. Uh, they might have been a little leery of me looking at their blowhole and stuff because it's so precious. Right. But after that, they trusted me and I could like palpate it with my fingers to just see what it's like. And I could grab them by the flukes and drag them around and throw them over and tickle them on the belly. And, all, and they'd put up with that. <laughs> right, right, right. So it was like after that, I was a member of the pod. And I could uh, swim for as long as I had energy. Wow, what an amazing and fortunate experience. Oh, me. yeah. They taught me a lot. <laughs> wow. Anywho, and that's, that's when, uh, you know, slowly, slowly the, the biological models just sort of fall away. You know, there's more to this than, than they admit. And um, I think everybody that's been close to him knows this. Certainly Lily did. And um, um, anyway, so on we go. But All after right. Well, look. Hey, man, that was great. We just spent, you know, for people who are just tuning in, anyway, that was probably 45 minutes or so, but well spent, Michael, because we just went from... You know, your training as a, you know, as a, as an orthodox biologist, basically, to a, to a person who has had, you know, uh, now has a different perspective along with that perspective. I mean, that's your, uh, that's your tremendous advantage, you know, that I see as a layman because, you know, you have the, you have the training, uh, you know, on the, uh, on the biology side and on the physiology side and all that stuff, but you yeah. also have the, the experience of being in the water, you know, and having relationships with these animals, with these mm -hmm. with these creatures, mm -hmm. uh, intelligent creatures, and so uh, so having both of those uh, uh, both of those points of view is just invaluable, I think, and I hope uh, people recognize how valuable that is for us to have people like you doing that work. Uh, I mean, it's it's outrageous, and I just love hearing. The, I could hear you tell the stories, you know, all night. So. Well. Let's see. Well, we can go in space for a little bit. Let's see. Um, yeah, let's a, talk just, about space and, what, yeah. and how to do, and, and we can use the dolphin as the transition into space. Some people. Right. We. Uh, I had actually a note about that. Somebody wrote to me, "Why dolphins in space?" You touched on it a little bit, bit before, but I have lots of questions. Please ask Dr. Heisen okay. about dolphins in space. Okay. Let me back up a little bit. When I was uh, like 13, 14, and in Texas with the dolphins, it was the same time the, uh, the Mercury and Gemini flights were going off. Sure. And so here I am in Texas watching that happen. Uh, Cousteau was colonizing the continental shelf with the, with the uh, Deep Star Project. Mm. And I was living with dolphins. And I just thought, our, our future is assured. We're going to space. We're going to find aliens. We're already playing with the dolphins for practice. You know, um, right. We're going to have the 2001 space wheel up there by the time of 2001. Right. And everything's right. going to work out. And I was just assured of that. It was really a nice time. And so I always had a... Uh, constant interest in in space and uh, why not by the way yeah. I mean I thought the same thing and I'm so 
disappointed that it didn't happen, but it's right. going to happen. And I was raised reading Heinlein, and uh, I still remember... I Ro was Robert, Robert Heinlein? Robert Heinlein, okay. yeah. And I'd read his future history outline. Yeah. So one day I had... I was even younger, maybe 11 or something. I'd have to check the date. But uh, I was hardly paying attention because politics was of zero interest. You're reading Robert Heinlein at 11. Yeah. And, um, anyway. You uh, know, you are a special person. <laughs> <laughs> In any case, whatever the age I was, uh, Kennedy came on. The neighbors had come over to watch the TV because Kennedy was going to give a speech. Right. And that's all I knew, and I hardly cared, you know. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, he says something like, we're going to the moon. <laughs> and everybody in the room went into shock. And I turned around and went, yippee, we'll only be 20 years late. <laughs> and everybody looked at me like I was nuts. <laughs> like, what do you mean late? <laughs> so I hauled out the Heinlein book, which, which shows in his future history series that he would, we would be on the moon by 1949. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. So anyway, I've been... I've been just jazzed about space and consciousness and animals and you know all that for years right. and uh, when I was in Florida I got to see Apollo 16 and 17 go from three miles away oh my gosh. I got to ride on the crawler once as a reporter they took us to the 380 foot level on the on the gantry while it was crawling to the pad really yeah and I got to see 17 go from three miles away at night it was just astounding amazing and uh so anyway it's kind of imprinted on rockets by all that now what about let me ask you another question i know you've been actually you've actually been in a zero g situation i think yes. haven't you yes 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 we'll get to that uh, okay. real quick okay. but anyway just i had a constant interest in space and i just sort of thought the dolphins would were our aliens to play with you know <laughs> that we were going to learn how to talk to them first, and then maybe we'd run into aliens and so on. But those were my young dreams, and I kept pushing those and trying to trying to get to it. Um, let's see. So after the Dolphin Project uh, had concluded in about 1976, uh, 77 on, I went to Caltech, and I kind of got out of the dolphin business for a while. You know, Los Angeles is more of a desert, and I got interested in Caltech and jet propulsion labs and space and all that. And so at one point, um, I uh, ran a space colony conference in 1978 at mm -hmm. Caltech. Right. And all the major guys doing space colonies, including O'Neill and O'Leary and uh, a number of people from uh, Jeff Propulsion Labs, like Eleanor Helene, who mm -hmm. finds asteroids. And I love Gerard O'Neill. I thought he was great. Oh, yeah. He was great. I almost dropped my Ph.D. work to go for, for his summer study. But cooler heads prevailed. They just said, finish your Ph.D. first. <laughs> okay. And so I did. And caught up with them later and had this conference and found out that they really had their heads screwed on straight, that it was engineeringly possible to make colonies in space and do space travel. And then one of the major thoughts was, okay, we have population problems. Okay, we have a small planet here, and it's going to get crowded someday. And where are you going to get resources? And... You can 99.999, however many nines you want to put on it, percent of all the resources are somewhere else in the Earth. So uh, from the moon, just the moon dust, we can get 98% of what we need. Mm. Uh, just simple moon dust, not even any special deposits or anything. And if you added a few things like carbon, calcium, hydrogen to make water, um, we've got everything we need hmm. just from moon dust. What do you mean, but as far as the elements that are in, in yeah, that yeah. Are? Um, there was a guy named David Criswell, and he he came up with this uh, concept called demandite. It was a mythical molecule or a mythical elemental mix where it had the elements in the ratios that we use them, you know, like so much iron, so much silicon, so much this, and he listed them all. Right. 
and and then you compare that to the analysis of Moonrock, and and 98% of what we need is available in dry Moonrock. No kidding. Right. Amazing. And the, the, what's missing are things like hydrogen. Right, right, for the water. Yeah, water is the most valuable thing you can imagine. Hmm. And we have a lot of it here. We are so fortunate. How rare uh, how rare is water as a as an element in in the as far as we know? I mean, I know we don't have a very big data sample, but well, um things like Phobos, which is made of sort of the original stuff, is about 25% water. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a dry comet. Comets are considered uh, You mean Phobos the moon of Mars? Yeah. Okay. It's considered it's a carbonaceous chondrite meteorite or a meteor. I'm sorry, asteroid, I guess you'd call it. Right. And uh, it's about 20 20-25% water. Right. Halley, I think, is about 40% water, and the, the ones out in the Kuiper Belt are supposed to be even wetter. I, I forget the percentage right now. Hmm. Uh, so in that sense, there's water all over the place. There's icy moons of Jupiter and so on, right. and the asteroids have water. But in our local region, the Earth has water, the moon is dry as a bone. Hmm. There is a chance that there's uh, ice in the permanently shadowed areas of the pole of the moon. Uh, Clementine came up with gamma ray spect data that said that but it's yet to be confirmed. So if we can find water on the pole of the moon, and you could set up a, a solar cell that was in the sunlight 100% of the time, and another part would be in shadow 100% of the time, so you've got a heat sink, then right. you've, got, you've got all the things you need to dig tunnels and build a colony. Hmm, amazing. And then it turned out that 70, 80% of the cost of a space mission was launch cost. You know, like uh, $50,000 a pound or so by NASA standards. So if you had a process that would change lead into gold, you'd still lose your shirt because um, the cost to get to orbit is greater than gold. You know? <laughs> and it's worse now. It's like a billion and a half per shuttle launch. Amazing. But at the end of Apollo, it was $200 million for another moon flight. So had we just mass-produced Saturn Vs, we'd be out to Pluto by now. Um but anyway, along we go. Um, I ended up working at Caltech and then moved to J. Uh, well, let's see, very quickly, let's see. <clears throat> I went to a summer study on, uh, for NASA on, re on making self-reproducing factories on the moon and met a lot more of the space colony guys, and we wrote a report. And then after, during that summer, I also met Gary Hudson, who was building the first private rocket, GCH Astronautics. We blew it up in 1980. <laughs> we blew up the first private rocket in the United States, but that's a little ahead of the story. <laughs> so, but I worked with them that summer while I was working with NASA, and then um, ended up getting a job at uh, Jet Propulsion Labs, working in their containerless processing unit. Um, the idea is, uh, what could you do in zero-g if you had no container? You could still melt and freeze and mix things. And it turned out things like computer chips especially, the purity was being limited by the container they were melting them in. So they wanted to get rid of the container, uh -huh. and it would make a market for things like the shuttle. So I worked on a number of projects like that. We ended up making a, an electrostatic levitator. Oh, man. Um, it was four electrodes that could be charged to 20,000 volts, up to 20,000 volts, and it was under the control of an Apple II computer and a couple cameras. And you could do things like uh, throw a drop of water into the air and then hold it in the electrostatic field. And we held it for three or four days once and made a salt crystal containerless. So once we got all that running, they then, much to my surprise, said, we're sending you to Edwards for high altitude school. I said, why? He says, oh, we're going to take this thing into zero G on the vomit comet. 
her real name is Wilma, but <laughs> anyway. So uh, basically, that was such fun that for the next nine years or so, uh, about every three months, we took the experiment down to Houston at Ellington Air Force Base and loaded it onto uh, the Weightless Wonder 4, also known as the Vomit Comet, but her crew chief called her Wilma. And we would go fly 30 or 40 parabolas a day. And uh, I ended up with uh, roughly 10 hours of zero-g, 30 seconds at a time. Wow. It was uh, marvelous. What's it, what's it like? Um, it's kind of like swimming in very light water. Huh. But it's such a profound difference. You, you know, everybody says you feel like you're falling. It's yes and it's so different that you're just there. It does feel strange. But um, in, in short order, you can get very used to it and have a great time. Huh. Um, one time, for example, they rolled me into a little ball, wrapped a rope around me, waited until we got into the zero-G, and then pulled the rope, and I'm spinning in every possible way. <laughs> and then they grabbed me before we came out of the parabola and put me on the ground so I could catch my breath and, and stop being so dizzy. <laughs> and then one time, just for the fun of it, I... I uh, flew the length of the plane like Superman once. <laughs> they got mad at me. <laughs> That's great. I would have been fine, except I almost put my foot through a $400,000 interferometer that was on the floor. <laughs> There's about 20 people doing experiments all at once inside this big uh, cargo bay. About, I don't know, 40 feet long and coated with wrestling mats. Oh, and there's experiments tied down to the floor, and there's others that they float within the plane right. to get even better zero-g. And uh, it was just great fun. Um, and you get so adapted to it that, like, on the last parabola of the third day, um, I just, we were just sitting there. We knew it was all over. Explain what you mean by parabola. Oh, oh. Um, they take the plane and point it into the sky at about 45 degrees. Right. Um, put the engines on full and drive it until they're going Mach 0.88. So they go from about 25,000 feet to 35,000 feet, then up over the top and then into a dive. Okay. So for the top part of that uh, loop, from, from up to down, over the top there, you're zero G for about 30 seconds. All right, and they follow the curve of a parabola. Yeah, and that curve is a parabola. Okay. And then they, they dive until it gets to 0.88, and then they pull out at 25,000 feet again, and oh then they do God. it again. That's amazing. And they do it uh, a set of 20, and then turn around to do another set of 20, and at that point, they're pretty much, they need to go home because they're low on fuel. Oh, my God. Well, what's it like pulling out of that thing? Oh, you go through 2G to pay for your 0G. So for every 30 seconds of 0G, you got to uh, stand 30 seconds of 2G right after it. Oh, man. And uh, they pointed out that if we fell over under those conditions and put out our arm to stop our fall, we'd probably break our arm. Amazing. So mostly we just stayed still. Although, in truth, if something broke, you fixed it during this 2G part. <laughs> <laughs> so we got pretty good. And uh, our Apple II even booted on a floppy drive in 2G. <laughs> I was amazed. That's amazing. That's two weeks in a row I've, uh, I've given plugs to Steve Jobs. He'd better send me a computer or something. Oh, Wozniak was brilliant. Oh, yeah, both those guys yeah. are great. I, I, I was talking about my iPod last week and about how that thing has just changed my life. It's like mm -hmm. I, can, I can load everything onto that thing and listen to, you know, amazing pieces of right. music and not only music but everything else, you know, right. so it's great. It really blew a lot of people's minds that we could do all this with an Apple II. Amazing. Um, uh, guys that had IBMs and stuff would sneer at us. Right. And then theirs broke and ours booted in 2G. <laughs> <laughs> they, were down for the, they were down for the whole time. We were back up in a couple minutes. <laughs> Tell you, man, I'm going I'm to I'm make a clip of this and I'm going to send it to Jobs and say, hey, we need some money. 
All right, fine. <laughs> yeah, we'll get always just the money. Anyway, that 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 got me going in in the space biz, and I thought, you know, maybe a fantasy, but maybe I was ten somewhere between tenth and twenty fifth to possibly be a mission specialist. Right. And about that time, Challenger happened. Oh man. And set everything back at least a decade. Yeah, everything changes. And I was kind of, well, frankly, a little bit uh, sick of NASA bureaucracy at that point. Mm. And uh, I had been keeping track of, uh, of um, Gary Hudson and his company. And he then had uh, Pacific American Launch Systems. He was working on single-staged orbit vehicles that could p potentially launch for $5 a pound. Yeah, which is really inexpensive, right? Right. Relatively right. speaking. Yes. I mean, even at, even the start... Uh, numbers were looked like 500 a pound, maybe a thousand max. And uh, with fleet size and use rates, I mean, it depends on your load model and how many fleet, how many in the fleet, and so on. But potentially, if you had about a thousand vehicles, you could do five dollars a pound, and like that. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> anyway, it was very exciting, and we had contracts with Society Expeditions to take tourists to orbit, and we were building a. Um, what we called the big dumb booster called the Liberty 1A that was pressure fed with four moving parts that was going to launch satellites, make us lots of money that would allow us to build demand one, which we called the Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And we worked on that diligently for uh, a couple of years and then various things happened and the company ran out of money. And then I was looking around for what to do next. <laughs> and um, my friend said, you know, we talk a lot, but every time we talk, you talk about dolphins, maybe I do something with them. So long story short, I uh, ended up in Florida with a lady named Roxanne Kramer who works with the freshwater dolphins in Brazil. Right. And I was swimming with um, um, some dolphins there and then went over to where she was swimming and just put my hand in the water. And this dolphin came out of the water and just rubbed her body across my hand, like very friendly, which blew my mind. Uh, and um, it turned out her, um, well... Long story short, I ended up swimming with her all night and had a great time, and she proved that she was telepathic. And uh, she warmed me up about three or four times when I got cold somehow. I have no idea how, really. Maybe dolphin diathermy or something. Right, because you were in the water. Right. And, and I mean, just again, Michael, explain it really quick how fast the human body loses heat in the water. Oh, yeah. You, I don't know. It's uh, probably at least ten times uh, more heat loss in the water than in the air. Right. And, so you uh, got cold, and somehow she warmed you up. Mm-hmm. I would get tired. She'd look at me like, you're leaving already? <laughs> <laughs> and then I would be warm somehow again. I have huh. no idea. So there's lots of magic here. Mm -hmm. And a couple other dolphins jumped 25 feet out of the water to like a salute to us. Hmm. And this just completely um, changed my thinking about them. Uh, and that's when I decided that everything I had thought was maybe a little crazy about Lily was actually true. And it was time to talk to him again. Right. And that's how I ended up meeting uh, Star Newland at his birthday party in 1990. Mm -hmm. And we very shortly um, got invited to a conference in Florida. So about a year later, I was back swimming with Dreamer again. Right. And I had a neck injury when I was 11 that compressed 6th and 7th cervical. She put 20 or 30 sonar pulses into my head and neck. And an hour later, three vertebrae clicked into new positions. And this gravel sound had been there since I was 13. I think I was 42 then, was just gone. She polished a bone spur or something. And, so it's, that, been, and it's been like that ever since? Absolutely. Yeah, I had about five, five degrees extra mobility on either side, and my neck stopped bothering me quite as much, and the gravel sound in particular was gone. It felt like somebody oiled my neck. <laughs> um, 
and that confirmed for me um, the healing stories. Because Dreamer, Dreamer was a special dolphin. I think she was like running a medical practice. Hmm. There are other stories that she got rid of a tumor, uh, zapped it with a big sound pulse, um, that Roxanne Kramer's mother had angina, and Dreamer and three other dolphins put their beaks on her chest, and the angina has had been gone at last I knew five years. Wow. You know, that's some time ago, so I don't know what happened, but it went away for at least five years. Just right, just like that. And then there's other stories about improve, um, my professor Truby was the first to take autistic children to see the dolphins, and their attention span went from five to ten minutes up to about an hour and a half. And they were cooperating, the two kids were cooperating with each other to play games with the dolphins. So something remarkable goes on there between the dolphins and the children. And now we've got a list of about four or five hundred different conditions like cerebral palsy, depression, microcephaly that get improved by dolphin therapy. Yeah, and I, Mike, I really want to want to reiterate that. I mean, this work with the children is something else, and it is work that you know that really needs to be continued and learned more about. Because, I mean, the the, the rise in autism alone, you know, yeah. is something that's been striking, and and there are I'm certain you know environmental factors and lots of reasons for it. But right, uh, my favorite one is probably mercury. Yes, I'm certain the vaccinations are probably a big part of this. But at any rate. The success you guys have seen in the limited uh, amount of opportunity you've had to experiment with it has been remarkable, I think. Mm -hmm. and, and some of the papers, uh, the, the the actual position paper that you wrote on it, uh, uh, Dolphins Therapy and Autism, I think it's called, maybe not yeah. rough, roughly, uh, yeah. that's one that people should download and read and uh, and share with other people, especially if they have friends or family or whatever who have children that are in these situations because there are some really interesting things going on and uh and i mean there's no reason not to investigate them right right all right well anyway thank okay. you for that work i think it's really yeah. important so. so that catches us up a uh, brief history of the rocket involvement so i was basically research director to two private rocket companies right and we started the first wave of private space now we're with rutan we're into the second phase um and uh, i'm glad of that so um, so what's happening in in those Worlds. To, I mean, in other words, what's the state of the art as far as space travel? Well, in the, in the private world, there's now about um, on the order of ten companies that are serious. There's Falcon. There's uh, Rutan's group, uh, Spaceship One, I think they call it. Um, uh, there's across the street at the airport is another group called Xcore that has very fine storable propellant engines, and they made a rocket plane called the Easy Rocket, based on the uh, Rutan very easy airplane. Mm -hmm. They put a, I think it was 400 pounds of thrust rocket on it, and they, they've been flying that around. And out of that is going to come some rocket airplane races. <laughs> so they're working on that. And then Rutan and uh, Virgin, Virgin Airways, Airways uh, Branson, are putting together tourist flights. Um, there's now also a, a group, uh, what do they call it? Um, oh, God, I've forgotten what they call it, but there's a, a group flying weightless parabolas for people. <laughs> using Russian aircraft. So it is kind of kicking along there. Um, I have to say, though, uh, as much as I admire Rutan, and I'm glad he did what he did, um, these um, hybrid rockets and stuff they're using for this are of zero use for any commercial or space colony use. Hmm. We still need liquid. I mean, if you're going to do rockets, you're going to need liquid rockets. So um, right now, the things that are, uh, I, I consider them very high-tech, very expensive, wonderful roller coaster rides, but there's yet to be a, a real a real push of private liquid rockets that could actually 
do the job. All right. Well, let me let me ask you about this. Right toward the beginning of the program, we sort of touched on the fact that uh, that that lots of scientists have uh, certain ideas and 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 maybe knowledge that they don't talk about uh, publicly because of the because of the hot water it might get in, get them into with regard to their careers and things like that. Ah, but, yes. but uh, I've come across many, many times over 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 a long period of years, you know, uh, reasonable evidence. I think that there are some alternative energy. I don't know. Maybe yes. device is not the great word used, but anyway, right. what, what what do you see with regard to that as far as okay. fu- future space travel and stuff? Because to me, it seems like. You know, rockets and propellant and that, it, you know, it yes. just doesn't seem to me to be the way to go. Right. I think I think rockets could get us to the moon and maybe to Mars. Right. Much beyond that, uh, they're just too unwieldy. I think the chance of getting to the stars that way is very low. Right. Um, so I have been looking all my life for things that were better. Mm-hmm. And most of my life, I would say, I'm a biologist, you're a physicist. When are we going faster than light? And they mm-hmm. said, no way, kid. Forget it. Mm-hmm. But then after I got out of the, most of the rocket work, I started looking at some of the alternate history. Yeah. Um, let's see, there's Nick Cook. I think you, you interviewed Nick Yeah, right? yeah, he wrote there's Nick uh, Cook. Hunt for uh, Zero Point. There's yeah. Michael Scala at Exopolitics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we have a link to his site. And Alfred Webray is another one. And then uh, some of the stuff comes from, uh, uh, say, a good source might be Stephen Greer at the Disclosure Project. He's right. got many military downloads or you know, people that have interviewed about their experiences right. and it's hard to say what's going on because there's also a lot of disinformation mm-hmm. so to really say I know the truth who knows I just read the reports right. but but the most exciting thing that got me going on all this was some work that started in the 30s no actually 20, 1927 um, uh, Paul Byfield and Thomas Townsend yeah, Brown, Townsend Brown, Brown, Brown yeah. discovered what they called electrogravity and it's quite simple Take a capacitor. That would uh, a simple form would be, say, two metal plates separated by some air or some some dielectric plastic, and you charge that system so that you got, say, 300,000 volts on it. And they claim, and studies have pretty much confirmed that it moves in the direction of the positive plate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Townsend Brown believed that they were that there was a coupling factor between electricity and gravity, so he called it electrogravity. And he thought this charged device was essentially creating a gravity well in front of it that it was basically falling into. Right. And the claim is that he had them flying around his lab, that he flew them in vacuum, that he flew them submerged in oil, which supposedly got rid of things like ionic wind and other mm. alternative explanations. Mm. And I have a, a science paper by a 15-year-old lady that did this in Hawaii <laughs> who showed it worked for a science project. <laughs> Now, if you look at this, uh, Nick Cook and the Disclosure Project and so on, uh, there are claims that we've had these kind of crafts since at least 1958. And depending on whose alternative history you believe, um, you know, the, the Germans might have had it in the 20s and the 30s. Right. And so um, it's possible that these things have been flying around that we built for a long time. And one of the confirmations of that is from Gordon Cooper, Mm-hmm. who was supposed to show up at a UFO conference I went to, but he was recovering from surgery and couldn't come. So he sent this cryptic note to, with a good friend of his saying that he had personally flown two back-engineered alien craft, and they went very fast and were hard to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and this is coming from a guy who walked on the moon. 
Well, Gordon didn't. Or no, Gordon flew. He went. He went he into flew Germany. Yeah, yeah, yeah the last that, that's right. I'm but, thinking but, of. Uh, I'm thinking of Edgar Mitchell. Oh, Edgar Mitchell. Uh, because ah, yes. he's another one that that, right. that that talks pretty openly about this sort of stuff. That's right. That's right. Oh, just to, just uh, the the just for the synchronicity of all this. The night my mom went into hospital for the last time, mm -hmm. um, I was over in Kona giving our paper on dolphin birth, dolphin attended birth Amazing. to Ed Mitchell. Are you they had a noetic science meeting there. Wow! So I got to shake his you. hand and meet him. Good for you. Yeah, it was yeah. quite a neat thing. That's another wonderful paper paper that I will suggest for people. And Michael, I think it's available on the site. It's called the Precocious yeah. Human Baby. Oh, that's one. But we've also got uh, uh, Dolphin Attended Birth and Therapy in Hawaii. That's up there. Oh, and, okay. I don't even and think it's I've a one-page summary which we presented to the uh, Mayor of Hawaii's. I'm sorry, Governor of Hawaii, Lynn, Governor Lingle's uh, advisory council. So it's been gotten to the governor. All right, that's right. The star did tell me about that. I remember yeah, now. Yeah, that was that's one thing. All right, um, all right. So yes, but Edgar Mitchell in particular has looked into the Roswell uh, incident, and it's his personal opinion that it was pretty much as uh, told that something alien crashed. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure what his position is on bodies and so on. Right. But his main thing was that we have been so bamboozled and conditioned to reject such data. He said, you can put the real data on the table, and people will say, oh, that's fake. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, because they've been so conditioned that this can't possibly be so, so obviously this must be fake, right? <laughs> yeah, what do they say? For the, for the believer, no evidence is required, and for the non-believer, no evidence is good enough. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, just for starters, something like 3,000 military pilots have seen odd things. Oh, yeah. There's various stories of what the astronauts say, saw. There's the Foo Fighters in World War II. Sure. I mean, we could go on and on. Oh, yeah, Something yeah. is going on. Yeah, and like you say, this uh, this disclosure project that Greer is involved in is actually pretty interesting because you had lots of really, I mean, what I would consider credible witnesses, but they went under oath and they did this as basically as if they were being deposed. Right, right, exactly. So anyway. And many of them are hoping to get, you know, to be officially released from their oaths of secrecy. Right, right. And then another one was the day after Roswell by Philip Corso. Mm-hmm. And um, I just talked to Michael Sala, who's uh, got an exopolitics site, and he's been talking about all that. Plus, uh, he talked to a guy named Paul Hillier, who was uh, Defense Secretary for Canada at one point. Yes. And I, he, he yeah. recently came out and said, basically, they're, they're alien craft, and this is going on. And he was convinced that Corso's book in particular was accurate. Yeah, and again, he was the former uh, Secretary or Minister of Defense in Canada. That's right. Yeah, Paul Hillier was his name. Yeah. Or is his name, and he's, he's on record. Name. Hellier, I think yeah, it is. It's yeah. more like Hellier. Yeah, Hellier. But anyway, he's on record as saying yeah. that now. Yeah, very much on record now. So I would like to think this is all cracking loose and that we're all ready to do this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been ready to do this since I was 15. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so, so with all that, though, uh, it's still stories. But recently I've met... Uh, Another one of your interviewees, uh, Nassim Haramine. Sure, another wonderful, and, wonderful researcher. And he and Dr. Elizabeth Rauscher have come up with um, their version of what might be called a grand unified field theory based on Einstein's relativity. Mm -hmm. But what they did is they improved it. Um, uh, very briefly, um, the models of black holes and other things we have with relativistic equations leave out torque, and they ignore Newton's third law. <laughs> they, uh, they ignore gyro moments, uh, Coriolis forces, shear forces, all kinds of things that happen when you're spinning at a high right, rate. Right, and of course everything is spinning at a high right. rate. Right, everything is spinning at a high rate, like a, a quark is probably spinning at near the speed of light. Electrons are pretty close to that. 
and so on. And then you've got the universe that's probably spinning around once every mm, 12 billion years, I think I figured it out, <laughs> roughly. Okay? <laughs> and that's a lot of torque. And that it's been ignored. And so uh, uh, Nassim and uh, Haramine and Rauscher put this back into the Einstein field equations, and everything unifies slicker than snot. Um, the weak force, and uh, very briefly, the weak force and strong force go away. Mm-hmm. Strong force is actually gravity, and there's some argument that gets rid of weak force. So you're left with gravity, electromagnetism, and uh, space-time to hold it all, and spin. And uh, to summarize the whole thing, spin causes curl. So in other words, spin, spin distorts space. Mm-hmm. And from that, many things follow. But one of the things that comes out of this very quickly is that there's zero need for dark matter, dark energy, anything else. Huh. It's because um, the current models are so lame that they only describe about 5% of the universe. Right, right. So, that's so the they've made up all these things to make them work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. As, as Nassim said once, the academics were so upset that the world was round that they made the universe flat. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. You know, and he's... You know, he's a serious, serious person, too, and so is Dr. Rauscher. And, Absolutely. I mean, and she has, uh, she has quite, a, quite a pedigree and an amazing background of her own. Oh, yeah, something like at least 200 publications, I think. She was working on nuclear physics, and she worked with uh, Targan put off on the remote viewing thing. Right, right. She wrote papers like The Speed of Thought. Oh, yeah, she's brilliant. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, so the punchline on all that is there are now theories and experiments having to do with things like free energy and uh, uh, electrogravity and now Nassim's work with, with uh, relativistic things and torque. And Nassim thinks that eventually we'll have things like gravity control mm. um, so we can make something fall up. So I asked him, what would prove that your theories are right? He said, oh, we'll know they're right when something levitates. Mm. <laughs> so that's what So that's the challenge now. Yeah, that's the challenge. Now, are they actually trying to do this in a physical manner? Uh, that's my understanding. I have zero privy to everything they're doing. Right. Um, but he has uh, has some uh, support, and they're they're going along very rapidly. Right. And so the way they put it, they they're using the concept of resonance to unify all the sciences, <laughs> because these things also have ramifications for the nature of consciousness. I mean, if, if gravity, electromagnetism, and spin is all you've got, then somehow consciousness has to come out of that. <laughs> So um, it looks like, I don't know, uh, it, these things get so fuzzy in terms of definition of the semantics and everything else. Right. But a quick way to put it would be that the ground of being is conscious. Hmm. You know, that's yeah. all there is. Right, it's all there is. And it's, <laughs> and it's, and it's everywhere. Yeah. 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 <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a stunner. You know? But therefore, with all these things coming out, I have great optimism that we're going to get away from the obsolete blowtorches of rockets and get to space right. now, if very we, rapidly. Now, if we do that, the next step is then colonies, right? Mm-hmm. Now, do you, do you picture colonies on uh, existing bodies, moons and planets and stuff, or do you picture, you know, the, like you said before, the 2001, you know, Babylon 5 type thing that's just a, a, a machine the size of Manhattan that's built in orbit <laughs> or something, you know? It'll be a while, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess my guess would be that... Uh, uh, well, Baron Hilton said that, that if you got the launch cost of 35 bucks a pound, that's inflated a bit since he said that. I think it was in the 70s or so when he said that, that he could make a profit on an orbital hotel. Mm-hmm. So I would like to think maybe an orbital hotel is, is uh, in the works. And then somewhere close, um, I think we should practice everything on the moon first. 
We can go up there and dig about 20 feet deep under the soil and be protected from radiation. Mm. And if there's water at the pole and so on, uh, that'll simplify things a lot. Right. You'd have to import less. So I think we'd start with a, a lunar polar base, or that would be my plan. Start with a lunar polar base, start the resource processing there till you get a big pile of stuff to make something with. And then you might make uh, start making the orbital colonies. But it, at the same time, it's good to remember that the propulsion cost to get to Phobos, for example, is roughly equal to getting to the moon. Yeah. But it, even on home and transfer, it takes a little longer. Hmm. But you could start a pipeline of water from Phobos, and then that would give you pretty quickly a base on Mars. Hmm. So I think it would probably go orbital, lunar, Mars okay. for, the, for the short term. Wow. <clears throat> and then somewhere along there, yeah, if there's a big enough market, then we can build almost anything in space. Um, um, with conventional strengths, we should be able to make cylinders that are 4 miles in diameter and 20 miles long. We should be able to make uh, spheres at least a mile across. Taurus is a mile across. Mm. <coughs> hey, Michael, we really haven't touched on nanotechnology tonight, but what do you think the implications of that are in all of this? Um, I think it's important. Uh, they're talking about like nanotechnology to make a space tether, for example, out of bucky tubes, mm. that kind of stuff. Hmm. Um, I think the nano people are, are kind of neck and neck with the biology people right now. Right. And I really wonder where it's going to go. Oh, man. I think uh, uh, Drexler was a little um, perhaps science fiction-y on how fast all this would happen. But certainly the nano stuff is important. Uh, you know, we can make special alloys and things like that. We may have n no idea what the real strength of material is yet. But basically, a lot of the nanotech is going on by taking pieces of biology and abstracting those. Mm -hmm. So my basic model is we are already nanomachines, mm. and it's called biology. Right. <laughs> and, right. yeah, we're going to do things like that. Amazing. Oh, and then to fold the dolphins back into all this. Yeah, and, I mean, because that, that, that was going to be the last question that I was going to say is I want you to tie dolphins in and also E.T. and language because, because I think that language, uh, <laughs> and if we can communicate with the dolphin... You know, what does that mean, right. w w you know, extrapolated towards the E.T., perhaps? Right. How much time do we have? Oh, we got about five minutes. Oh, the total show? Yeah, we've been talking for two oh, hours already. Okay, well, very quickly, um, <laughs> the latest astronomical uh, data suggests that the Sirius system is a three-body system like the Dogon say. Right. So my fantasy is, it's just perhaps a fantasy that it's time to go back there and see what's really there. Wouldn't that be something? And so that's my dream. And then... Since the dolphins are pre-adapted to zero-g, maybe they'd like to come, too. And David Brin wrote a thing called Star Tide Rising, where he had a human-dolphin crewed ship, and I thought that would be fun. Oh, was that, that was a fictional work. Yes, fictional work, of course. Yeah. Of course. So it's just my personal vision that I would like to do that. And then, let's see, I should mention very quickly, then, we only got a few minutes. Um, um, we're going to be doing an Earth Day event called Aloha to Deep Space. We hope to... Uh, link the humpback sounds to a dish that will send them out into deep space again like we did last like year. Like last year. And we'll also have a hula uh, doing whale chants, uh, a chant about the whales in Hawaiian. And we're going to have a lady that we call Her Royal Highness come and talk story as a kahuna about the relationship of Hawaii and dolphins. Um, we're working on legislation called the Gentle Birth Resolution. We're trying to get that through the state legislature to get people understanding the importance of gentle gestation oh, and uh, uh, gentle birth, especially yeah. water birth with dolphins. Uh, STAR has been doing an a amazing job contacting legislators, lobbying for this, talking to senators and so on. 
trying to get this through. Um, perhaps we'll make it. Um, Let's see what else. Uh, some of this stuff is going to be uh, broadcast live over the web as well, I think, because you had sort oh, of. Oh, yes, yes, yes. We're, it, we're getting uh, close on that stuff. Right. So. We, uh, we just did a live broadcast of the Rowan Brothers from Lola's Cafe last night yep. to Cosmic Waves Radio. Yep, compliments of our friends is. over there. Yeah. yeah, Carrie was very nice to help us do that, and we, we hope to link our show at the Earth Day to that as well, so it'll be webcast. And in terms of communication, um, Star has come up with a technology we call language sculpting mm. and it basically is how to give out positive language uh, how to create new realities by the conscious use of language so for example somebody might say I don't want my car to break it would be better to say I want my car to run right right I want my car to stay well right I want my car to stay well because you're giving the brain the image mm. of, of that your car will work mm. in the one case in the in the negative case the knot kind of gets blipped out of your brain, and and your subconscious picks up the image of break, you know. <laughs> right, right. That kind of, that's that's a very crude and quick um, uh, rendition of something that's much more subtle. Yeah, we talked and, about it when she was on the air just a right. few months ago. I want to just uh, praise her for many of the inventions that she's made in all this. I mean, she came up with the Serious Connection, the Serious Institute. She came up with the name Planet Puna as a community outreach and educational system. Uh, the um, uh, the whales into space was her basic idea, yeah. and so on. Uh, anyway, we've been working together for 15 years, and I um, love her dearly, and we're uh, great business partners and um, have been doing this for some time. And I just want to praise her for her uh, persistence and her courage sure. and everything. And then there's the whole story about you know her second son being born on Kahana Beach with right. 300 dolphins waiting, which we've told before. Right, and uh, We've so. just had an amazing life out here. And now, as I say, we're in contact with people like Nassim that are working on gravity control. <laughs> and uh, there's, I don't know, I can give you a list of, say, 20 people that understand things like dolphin telepathy. Hmm. So that's important. Yeah. Another whole thing. We could go on for hours. I know, I know. But, and we will. We'll have more time. Right. You know, and both of you, Michael, you and Star, both, you're a great team, like I said before, and you're both doing wonderful work, and it's important, and... and uh, I appreciate everything that you guys are doing, and I love it. And I'm so glad that I get to to be a part of it. To that, that oh. you share it with me, I love right. it. So oh, I uh, love it too. I think you're doing such a great job. You have such a archive of people that I that I always love their work. I mean, Dennis uh, McKenna and Joseph Chilton Pierce and La Violette and a whole range of people that are just brilliant and important. That yeah, you, and you it, give them a venue. Well, and interestingly, that all all. all uh, you know, sort of a thread that runs throughout all of these somehow. I'm not sure how it's all going to come together, but I have a great idea. So uh, when we're when we're running the world, Michael, you're going to be the guy that runs the space program. So, <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Yeah. All right. Well, look, uh, it's been a pleasure. We'll do it again next time. We'll have Star on the air with us, uh, and we'll do uh, we'll do our three way conversation like we've done before. All right. And um, we'll continue to uh, keep pushing. You know. Yes. All right, well, look, uh, it's been a pleasure, Michael. We'll talk to you soon, and I'll uh, give the website out again one more time. Right. Uh, information. Go ahead, Mike. Sorry. Oh, just remember, we're going to space if we have to walk. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right, we're going to space if we've got to walk there. Right. And uh, you can find out how at www.planetpuna.com. Dr. Michael Heisen and uh, Star Paradise Newland uh, doing wonderful work, and we'll, we'll talk to you guys again soon, okay, Mike? All right. Thanks again. Aloha. Aloha. All right, everybody, Dr. Michael Heisen, the wonderful Dr. Michael Heisen, thanks very much for 
a wonderful conversation as always, Mike. Okay, it is uh, about four minutes till the top of the hour here. We'll finish off with a little bit more music from Lisa Walker and uh, her wonderful CD, Grooved Whale. This one's called Violin Laugh. And this is Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back again next week with uh, James Kent, the wonderful author of uh, Psychedelic Information Theory. James Kent, next week, the 17th of April. Until then, enjoy yourselves. This is Mike, Radio Orbit.